Chapter One of Howard's End. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Howard's End by E. M. Forster. Chapter One. One may as well begin with Helen's letters to her sister. Howard's End, Tuesday. Dearest Meg, it isn't going to be what we expected. It is old and little, and altogether delightful, red brick. We can scarcely pack in as it is, and the dear knows what will happen when Paul, younger son, arrives to-morrow. From hall you go right or left, into dining-room or drawing-room. Hall itself is practically a room. You open another door in it, and there are the stairs going up in a sort of tunnel to the first floor. Three bedrooms in a row there, and three attics in a row above. That isn't all the house, really. But it's all that one notices. Nine windows as you look up from the front garden. Then there's a very big witch-elm, to the left as you look up. Leaning a little over the house, and standing on the boundary between the garden and meadow. I quite love that tree already. Also ordinary elms, oaks, no nastier than ordinary oaks, pear trees, apple trees, and a vine. No silver birches, though. However, I must get on to my host and hostess. I only wanted to show that it isn't the least what we expected. Why did we settle that their house would be all gables and wiggles, and their garden all gambage-coloured paths? I believe simply because we associate them with expensive hotels. Mrs. Wilcox trailing in beautiful dresses down long corridors, Mr. Wilcox bullying porters, etc. We females are that unjust. I shall be back Saturday. We'll let you know train later. They are as angry as I am that you did not come too. Really, Tibby is too tiresome. He starts a new mortal disease every month. How could he have got hay fever in London? And even if he could, it seems hard that you should give up a visit to hear a schoolboy sneeze. Tell him that Charles Wilcox, the son who is here, has hay fever too, but he's brave, and gets quite cross when we inquire after it. Men like the Wilcoxes would do Tibby a power of good. But you won't agree, and I'd better change the subject. This long letter is because I'm writing before breakfast. Oh, the beautiful vine leaves! The house is covered with a vine. I looked out earlier, and Mrs. Wilcox was already in the garden. She evidently loves it. No wonder she sometimes looks tired. She was watching the large red poppies come out. Then she walked off the lawn to the meadow, whose corner to the right I can just see. Trail, trail, went her long dress over the sopping grass, and she came back with her hands full of the hay that was cut yesterday, I suppose for rabbits or something, as she kept on smelling it. The air here is delicious. Later on I heard the noise of croquet balls, and looked out again, and it was Charles Wilcox practising. They are keen on all games. Presently he started sneezing, and had to stop. Then I hear more clicketing, and it is Mr. Wilcox practising, and then, 
A tissue! A tissue! He has to stop, too. Then Evie comes out, and does some calisthenic exercises on a machine that is tacked onto a green-gauge tree. They put everything to use. And then she says, A tissue! And in she goes. And finally Mrs. Wilcox reappears, trail, trail, still smelling hay and looking at the flowers. I inflict all this on you, because once you said that life is sometimes life, and sometimes only a drama, and one must learn to distinguish t'other from which, and up to now I have always put that down as Meg's clever nonsense. But this morning it really does seem not life, but a play, and it did amuse me enormously to watch the W's. Now Mrs. Wilcox has come in. I am going to wear— Omission. Last night Mrs. Wilcox wore an— Omission. And Evie— Omission. So it isn't exactly a go-as-you-please place, and if you shut your eyes it still seems the Wiggly Hotel that we expected. Not if you open them. The dog-roses are too sweet. There is a great hedge of them over the lawn, magnificently tall, so that they fall down in garlands, and nice and thin at the bottom, so that you can see ducks through it and a cow. These belong to the farm, which is the only house near us. There goes the breakfast gong. Much love. Modified love to Tibby. Love to Aunt Julie. How good of her to come and keep you company, but what a bore! Burn this. We'll write again Thursday. Helen. Howard's End, Friday. Dearest Meg, I am having a glorious time. I like them all. Mrs. Wilcox, if quieter than in Germany, is sweeter than ever, and I never saw anything like her steady unselfishness, and the best of it is that the others do not take advantage of her. They are the very happiest, jolliest family that you can imagine. I do really feel that we are making friends. The fun of it is that they think me a noodle, and say so at least Mr. Wilcox does. And when that happens, and one doesn't mind, it's a pretty sure test, isn't it? He says the most horrid things about women's suffrage so nicely. And when I said I believed in equality, he just folded his arms, and gave me such a setting down as I've never had. Meg, shall we ever learn to talk less? I never felt so ashamed of myself in my life. I couldn't point to a time when men had been equal— nor even to a time when the wish to be equal had made them happier in other ways. I couldn't say a word. I had just picked up the notion that equality is good from some book, probably from poetry, or you. Anyhow, it's been knocked into pieces, and like all people who are really strong, Mr. Wilcox did it without hurting me. On the other hand, I laugh at them for catching hay-fever. We live like fighting-cocks, and Charles takes us out every day in the motor— a tomb with trees in it, a hermit's house, a wonderful road that was made by the kings of Mercia, tennis, a cricket-match, bridge, and at night we squeeze up in this lovely house. The whole clan's here now. It's like a rabbit-warren. Evie is a dear. They want me to stop over Sunday. I suppose it won't matter if I do. Marvellous weather and the views marvellous, views westward to the high ground. Thank you for your letter. Burn this. Your affectionate Helen. Howard's End, Sunday. Dearest, dearest Meg, I do not know what you will say. 
Paul and I are in love. The younger son who only came here Wednesday. End of chapter 1「Chapter Two of Howard's End」This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett Howard's End by E. M. Forster Chapter Two Margaret glanced at her sister's note and pushed it over the breakfast-table to her aunt. There was a moment's hush, and then the floodgates opened. "'I can tell you nothing, Aunt Julie. I know no more than you do. We met—we only met the father and mother abroad last spring. I know so little that I didn't even know their son's name. It's all so—' She waved her hand and laughed a little. "'In that case it is far too sudden.' "'Who knows, Aunt Julie, who knows?' "'But, Margaret, dear, I mean, we mustn't be unpractical now we've come to facts. "'It is too sudden, surely.' "'Who knows? But, Margaret, dear—' "'I'll go for her other letters,' said Margaret. "'No, I won't. I'll finish my breakfast. "'In fact, I haven't them. "'We met the Wilcoxes on an awful expedition that we made from Heidelberg to Speer.' Helen and I had got it into our heads that there was a grand old cathedral at Speer. The Archbishop of Speer was one of the seven electors—you know, Speer, Mainz, and Kuhn. Those three sees once commanded the Rhine Valley, and got it the name of Priest Street. I still feel quite uneasy about this business, Margaret. The train crossed by a bridge of boats, and at first sight it looked quite fine. Oh, but, oh, in five minutes we had seen the whole thing! The cathedral had been ruined, absolutely ruined, by restoration, not an inch left of the original structure. We wasted a whole day, and came across the Wilcoxes as we were eating our sandwiches in the public gardens. They, too, poor things, had been taken in. They were actually stopping at Speer, and they rather liked Helen insisting that they must fly with us to Heidelberg. As a matter of fact, they did come on next day. We all took some drives together. They knew us well enough to ask Helen to come and see them. At least, I was asked too, but Tibby's illness prevented me, so last Monday she went alone. That's all. You know as much as I do now. It's a young man out the unknown. She was to have come back Saturday, but put off till Monday, perhaps on account of—I don't know. She broke off, and listened to the sounds of a London morning. Their house was in Wickham Place, and fairly quiet— for a lofty promontory of buildings separated it from the main thoroughfare. One had the sense of a backwater, or rather of an estuary, whose waters flowed in from the invisible sea, and ebbed into a profound silence while the waves without were still beating. Though the promontory consisted of flats, expensive, with cavernous entrance-halls, full of concierges and palms, it fulfilled its purpose, and gained for the older houses opposite a certain measure of peace. These two would be swept away in time, and another promontory would rise upon their sight, as humanity piled itself higher and higher on the precious soil of London. 
Mrs. Munt had her own method of interpreting her nieces. She decided that Margaret was a little hysterical, and was trying to gain time by a torrent of talk. Feeling very diplomatic, she lamented the fate of Speer, and declared that never, never should she be so misguided as to visit it, and added of her own accord that the principles of restoration were ill understood in Germany. "'The Germans,' she said, "'are too thorough. And this is all very well sometimes, but at other times it does not do.' "'Exactly,' said Margaret. "'Germans are too thorough.' and her eyes began to shine. "'Of course I regard you Schlegels as English,' said Mrs. Munt hastily. "'English to the backbone!' Margaret leaned forward and stroked her hand. "'And that reminds me. Helen's letter?' "'Oh, yes, Aunt Julie. I am thinking all right about Helen's letter. I know. I must go down and see her. I am thinking about her all right. I am meaning to go down.' "'But go with some plan,' said Mrs. Munt, admitting into her kindly voice a note of exasperation. "'Margaret, if I may interfere, don't be taken by surprise. What do you think of the Wilcoxes? Are they our sort? Are they likely people? Could they appreciate Helen, who is to my mind a very special sort of person? Do they care about literature and art?' That is most important when you come to think of it. Literature and art, most important. How old would the son be? She says younger son. Would he be in a position to marry? Is he likely to make Helen happy? Did you gather— I gathered nothing. They began to talk at once. Then in that case— In that case I can make no plans, don't you see? On the contrary. I hate plans. I hate lines of action. Helen isn't a baby. Then in that case, my dear, why go down?" Margaret was silent. If her aunt could not see why she must go down, she was not going to tell her. She was not going to say, I love my dear sister. I must be near her at this crisis of her life. The affections are more reticent than the passions, and their expression more subtle. If she herself should ever fall in love with a man, she, like Helen, would proclaim it from the housetops. But as she loved only a sister, she used the voiceless language of sympathy. "'I consider you odd girls,' continued Mrs. Munt, "'and very wonderful girls, and in many ways far older than your years. But—you won't be offended. Frankly, I feel you are not up to this business. It requires an older person.' "'Dear, I have nothing to call me back to Swanage,' she spread out her plump arms. "'I am all at your disposal. Let me go down to this house, whose name I forget, instead of you.' "'Aunt Julie,'—she jumped up and kissed her, "'I must, must go to Howard's End myself. You don't exactly understand, though I can never thank you properly for offering.' "'I do understand.' retorted Mrs. Munt, with immense confidence. "'I go down in no spirit of interference, but to make inquiries. Inquiries are necessary. Now I am going to be rude. You would say the wrong thing. To a certainty you would. In your anxiety for Helen's happiness, you would offend the whole of these Wilcoxes by asking one of your impetuous questions. 
Not that one minds offending them. I shall ask no questions. I have it in Helen's writing that she and a man are in love. There is no question to ask, as long as she keeps to that. All the rest isn't worth a straw. A long engagement, if you like, but inquiries, questions, plans, lines of action—no, Aunt Julie, no. Away she hurried. Not beautiful, not supremely brilliant, but filled with something that took the place of both qualities. Something best described as a profound vivacity, a continual and sincere response to all that she encountered in her path through life. If Helen had written the same to me about a shop assistant or a penniless clerk— Dear Margaret, do come into the library and shut the door. Your good maids are dusting the banisters. Or if she had wanted to marry the man who calls for Carter Patterson, I should have said the same. Then, with one of those turns that convinced her aunt that she was not mad, really, and convinced observers of another type that she was not a barren theorist, she added— Though in the case of Carter Patterson, I should want it to be a very long engagement indeed, I must say. "'I should think so,' said Mrs. Munt. "'And indeed, I can scarcely follow you. Now just imagine if you said anything of that sort to the Wilcoxes. I understand it, but most good people would think you mad. Imagine how disconcerting for Helen. What is wanted is a person who will go slowly— slowly in this business, and see how things are, and where they are likely to lead to." Margaret was down on this. "'But you implied just now that the engagement must be broken off.' "'I think, probably, it must. But slowly.' "'Can you break an engagement off slowly?' Her eyes lit up. "'What's an engagement made of, do you suppose? I think it's made of some hard stuff that may snap, but can't break. It is different to the other ties of life. They stretch or bend, they admit of degree, they're different. Exactly so. But won't you let me just run down to Howard's house and save you all the discomfort? I will really not interfere. But I do so thoroughly understand the kind of thing you Schlegels want, that one quiet look round will be enough for me." Margaret again thanked her, again kissed her, and then ran upstairs to see her brother. He was not so well. The hay fever had worried him a good deal all night. His head ached, his eyes were wet, his mucous membrane, he informed her, was in a most unsatisfactory condition. The only thing that made life worth living was the thought of Walter Savage Landor, from whose imaginary conversation she had promised to read at frequent intervals during the day. It was rather difficult. Something must be done about Helen. She must be assured that it is not a criminal offence to love at first sight. A telegram to this effect would be cold and cryptic. A personal visit seemed each moment more impossible. Now the doctor arrived, and said that Tibby was quite bad. Might it really be best to accept Aunt Julie's kind offer, and to send her down to Howard's End with a note? Certainly Margaret was impulsive. She did swing rapidly from one decision to another. Running downstairs into the library, she cried, "'Yes, I have changed my mind. I do wish that you would go.' There was a train from King's Cross at eleven. At half-past ten, Tibby, with rare self-effacement, fell asleep, and Margaret was able to drive her aunt to the station. "'You will remember, Aunt Julie, not to be drawn into discussing the engagement. 
Give my letter to Helen, and say whatever you feel yourself, but do keep clear of the relatives. We have scarcely got their names straight yet, and besides, that sort of thing is so uncivilized and wrong. So uncivilized? queried Mrs. Munt, fearing that she was losing the point of some brilliant remark. Oh, I used an affected word. I only meant—would you please only talk the thing over with Helen? Only with Helen? Because—but it was no moment to expound the personal nature of love. Even Margaret shrank from it, and contented herself with stroking her good aunt's hand, and with meditating, half sensibly and half poetically, on the journey that was about to begin from King's Cross. Like many others who have lived long in a great capital, she had strong feelings about the various railway termini. They are our gates to the glorious and the unknown. Through them we pass out into adventure and sunshine, and to them, alas, we return. In Paddington, all Cornwall is latent, and the remoter west. Down the inclines of Liverpool Street lie Fenlands and the illimitable broads. Scotland is through the pylons of Euston, Wessex behind the poised chaos of Waterloo. Italians realize this, as is natural. Those of them who are so unfortunate as to serve as waiters in Berlin call the Anhalt Bahnhof the Stazione d'Italia, because by it they must return to their homes. And he is a chilly Londoner who does not endow his stations with some personality, and extend to them, however shyly, the emotions of fear and love. To Margaret, I hope that it will not set the reader against her, the station of King's Cross had always suggested infinity. Its very situation, withdrawn a little behind the facile splendours of St. Pancras, implied a comment on the materialism of life. Those two great arches, colourless, indifferent, shouldering between them an unlovely clock, were fit portals for some eternal adventure, whose issue might be prosperous, but would certainly not be expressed in the ordinary language of prosperity. If you think this ridiculous, remember that it is not Margaret who is telling you about it. And let me hasten to add that they were in plenty of time for the train, that Mrs. Munt, though she took a second-class ticket, was put by the guard into a first—only two seconds on the train, one smoking and the other babies, one cannot be expected to travel with babies—and that Margaret, on her return to Wickham Place, was confronted with the following telegram. All over. Wish I had never written. Tell no one. Helen. But Aunt Julie was gone. Gone irrevocably, and no power on earth could stop her. End of chapter 2 Chapter Three of Howard's End. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Howard's End by E. M. Forster. Chapter Three. Most complacently did Mrs. Munt rehearse her mission. Her nieces were independent young women, and it was not often that she was able to help them. Emily's daughters had never been quite like other girls. 
They had been left motherless when Tibby was born, when Helen was five and Margaret herself but thirteen. It was before the passing of the deceased wife's sister, Bill, so Mrs. Munt could without impropriety offer to go and keep house at Wickham Place. But her brother-in-law, who was peculiar and a German, had referred the question to Margaret, who with the crudity of youth had answered, No, they could manage much better alone. Five years later Mr. Schlegel had died, too, and Mrs. Munt had repeated her offer. Margaret, crude no longer, had been grateful and extremely nice, but the substance of her answer had been the same. "'I must not interfere a third time,' thought Mrs. Munt. However, of course, she did. She learnt to her horror that Margaret, now of age, was taking her money out of the old safe investments, and putting it into foreign things, which always smash. Silence would have been criminal. Her own fortune was invested in home rails, and most ardently did she beg her niece to imitate her. "'Then we should be together, dear.' Margaret, out of politeness, invested a few hundreds in the Nottingham and Derby Railway, and though the foreign things did admirably, and the Nottingham and Derby declined with the steady dignity of which only home rails are capable, Mrs. Munt never ceased to rejoice, and to say, "'I did manage that, at all events. When the smash comes, poor Margaret will have a nest-egg to fall back on.' This year Helen came of age, and exactly the same thing happened in Helen's case. She also would shift her money out of consoles, but she too, almost without being pressed, consecrated a fraction of it to the Nottingham and Derby Railway. So far, so good. But in social matters their aunt had accomplished nothing. Sooner or later the girls would enter on the process known as throwing themselves away, and if they had delayed hitherto, it was only that they must throw themselves more vehemently in the future. They saw too many people at Wickham Place—unshaven musicians, an actress even, German cousins—one knows what foreigners are— acquaintances picked up at Continental Hotels. One knows what they are, too. It was interesting, and down at Swanage no one appreciated culture more than Mrs. Munt, but it was dangerous, and disaster was bound to come. How right she was, and how lucky to be on the spot when the disaster came! The train sped northward, under innumerable tunnels. It was only an hour's journey, but Mrs. Munt had to raise and lower the window again and again. She passed through the South Wellwyn Tunnel, saw light for a moment, and entered the North Wellwyn Tunnel, of tragic fame. She traversed the immense viaduct, whose arches span on troubled meadows, and the dreamy flow of two in water. She skirted the parks of politicians. At times the Great North Road accompanied her, more suggestive of infinity than any railway, awakening after a nap of a hundred years to such life as is conferred by the stench of motor-cars, and to such culture as is implied by the advertisements of antibilious pills. To history, to tragedy, to the past, to the future, Mrs. Munt remained equally indifferent, hers but to concentrate on the end of her journey, and to rescue poor Helen from this dreadful mess. The station for Howard's End was at Hilton one of the large villages that are strung so frequently along the North Road, and that owe their size to the traffic of coaching and pre-coaching days. Being near London, it had not shared in the rural decay, and its long high street had butted out right and left into residential estates. 
For about a mile a series of tiled and slated houses passed before Mrs. Munt's inattentive eyes, a series broken at one point by six Danish tumuli that stood shoulder to shoulder along the high road, tombs of soldiers. Beyond these tumuli habitations thickened, and the train came to a standstill in a tangle that was almost a town. The station, like the scenery, like Helen's letters, struck an indeterminate note. Into which country will it lead? England or suburbia? It was new, it had island platforms and a subway, and the superficial comfort exacted by businessmen. But it held hints of local life, personal intercourse, as even Mrs. Munt was to discover. "'I want a house,' she confided to the ticket-boy. "'Its name is Howard's Lodge. Do you know where it is?' "'Mr. Wilcox!' the boy called. A young man in front of them turned round. "'She's wanting Howard's End!' There was nothing for it but to go forward, though Mrs. Munt was too much agitated even to stare at the stranger. But remembering that there were two brothers, she had the sense to say to him, "'Excuse me asking, but are you the younger, Mr. Wilcox, or the elder?' "'The younger. Can I do anything for you?' "'Oh, well,' she controlled herself with dignity, "'really, are you? I—' She moved herself away from the ticket-boy and lowered her voice. "'I am Miss Schlegel's aunt. I ought to introduce myself, oughtn't I? My name is Mrs. Munt.' She was conscious that he raised his cap and said quite coolly, "'Oh, rather, Miss Schlegel is stopping with us. Did you want to see her?' "'Possibly.' "'I'll call you a cab.' "'No, wait a mo,' he thought. "'Our motor's here. I'll run you up in it.' "'Oh, that is very kind. Not at all. If you'll just wait till they bring out a parcel from the office. This way.' "'My niece is not with you by any chance. "'No, I came over with my father. "'He has gone on north in your train. "'You'll see Miss Schlegel at lunch. "'You're coming up to lunch, I hope.' "'I should like to come up,' said Mrs. Munt, "'not committing herself to nourishment "'until she had studied Helen's lover a little more. "'He seemed a gentleman, "'but had so rattled her round "'that her powers of observation were numbed. "'She glanced at him stealthily.' To a feminine eye there was nothing amiss in the sharp depressions at the corners of his mouth, nor in the rather box-like construction of his forehead. He was dark, clean-shaven, and seemed accustomed to command. "'In front or behind? Which do you prefer? It may be windy in front.' "'In front, if I may. Then we can talk.' "'But excuse me one moment. I can't think what they're doing with that parcel.' He strode into the booking-office and called with a new voice— "'Hi! Hi, you there! Are you going to keep me waiting all day? Parcel for Wilcox, Howard's End. Just look sharp!' Emerging, he said in quieter tones, "'This station's abominably organized. If I had my way, the whole lot of them should get the sack. May I help you in?' "'This is very good of you,' said Mrs. Munt, as she settled herself into a luxurious cavern of red leather, and suffered her person to be padded with rugs and shawls. She was more civil than she had intended, but really this young man was very kind. Moreover, she was a little afraid of him. His self-possession was extraordinary. "'Very good indeed,' she repeated, adding, "'It is just what I should have wished.' 
"'Very good of you to say so,' he replied, with a slight look of surprise, which, like most slight looks, escaped Mrs. Munt's attention. "'I was just tooling my father over to catch the down train.' "'You see, we heard from Helen this morning.' Young Wilcox was pouring in petrol, starting his engine, and performing other actions with which this story has no concern. The great car began to rock, and the form of Mrs. Munt, trying to explain things, sprang agreeably up and down among the red cushions. "'The Major will be very glad to see you,' he mumbled. "'Hi! I say! Parcel for Howard's End! Bring it out! Hi!' A bearded porter emerged with the parcel in one hand and an entry-book in the other. With the gathering whir of the motor these ejaculations mingled. "'Sign, must I? Why the—should I sign after all this bother? Not even got a pencil on you?' Remember, next time I report you to the station-master, my time's a value, though yours mayn't be. Here. Here being a tip. Extremely sorry, Mrs. Munt. Not at all, Mr. Wilcox. And do you object to going through the village? It is rather a longer spin, but I have one or two commissions. I should love going through the village. Naturally, I am very anxious to talk things over with you. As she said this, she felt ashamed— for she was disobeying Margaret's instructions. Only disobeying them in the letter, surely. Margaret had only warned her against discussing the incident with outsiders. Surely it was not uncivilized or wrong to discuss it with the young man himself, since chance had thrown them together. A reticent fellow, he made no reply. Mounting by her side, he put on gloves and spectacles, and off they drove. The bearded porter—life is a mysterious business— looking after them with admiration. The wind was in their faces down the station road, blowing the dust into Mrs. Munt's eyes. But as soon as they turned into the great north road, she opened fire. "'You can well imagine,' she said, "'that the news was a great shock to us.' "'What news?' "'Mr. Wilcox,' she said frankly, "'Margaret has told me everything, everything. I have seen Helen's letter.' He could not look her in the face, as his eyes were fixed on his work. He was travelling as quickly as he dared down the high street. But he inclined his head in her direction, and said, "'I beg your pardon. I didn't catch.' "'About Helen. Helen, of course. Helen is a very exceptional person. I am sure you will let me say this, feeling towards her as you do. Indeed, all the Schlegels are exceptional. I come in no spirit of interference— but it was a great shock. They drew up outside a draper's. Without replying, he turned round in his seat, and contemplated the cloud of dust that they had raised in their passage through the village. It was settling again, but not all into the road from which he had taken it. Some of it had percolated through the open windows, some had whitened the roses and gooseberries of the wayside gardens, while a certain proportion had entered the lungs of the villagers. "'I wonder when they'll learn wisdom and tar the roads,' was his comment. Then a man ran out of the drapers with a roll of oilcloth, and off they went again. "'Margaret could not come herself, on account of poor Tibby, so I am here to represent her, and to have a good talk.' "'I'm sorry to be so dense,' said the young man, again drawing up outside a shop. "'But I still haven't quite understood.' "'Helen, Mr. Wilcox, my niece, and you.' He pushed up his goggles and gazed at her, 
absolutely bewildered. Horror smote her to the heart, for even she began to suspect that they were at cross-purposes, and that she had commenced her mission by some hideous blunder. "'Miss Schlegel and myself,' he asked, compressing his lips. "'I trust there has been no misunderstanding,' quavered Mrs. Munt. "'Her letter certainly read that way.' "'What way?' "'That you and she—' She paused, then drooped her eyelids. "'I think I catch your meaning,' he said stickily. "'What an extraordinary mistake!' "'Then you didn't the least—' she stammered, getting blood-red in the face and wishing she had never been born. "'Scarcely, as I am already engaged to another lady.' There was a moment's silence, and then he caught his breath and exploded with, "'Oh, good God! Don't tell me it's some silliness of Paul's!' "'But you are Paul!' "'I'm not.' "'Then why did you say so at the station?' "'I said nothing of the sort.' "'I beg your pardon, you did.' "'I beg your pardon, I did not. My name is Charles.' Younger may mean son as opposed to father, or second brother as opposed to first. There is much to be said for either view, and later on they said it, but they had other questions before them now. "'Do you mean to tell me that Paul?' But she did not like his voice. He sounded as if he was talking to a porter— and certain that he had deceived her at the station, she too grew angry. "'Do you mean to tell me that Paul and your niece—' Mrs. Munt, such is human nature, determined that she would champion the lovers. She was not going to be bullied by a severe young man. "'Yes, they care for one another very much indeed,' she said. "'I dare say they will tell you about it by and by. We heard this morning.' And Charles clenched his fist and cried, "'The idiot! The idiot! The little fool!' Mrs. Munt tried to divest herself of her rugs. "'If that is your attitude, Mr. Wilcox, I prefer to walk.' "'I beg you will do no such thing. I'll take you up this moment to the house. Let me tell you, the thing's impossible, and must be stopped.' Mrs. Munt did not often lose her temper, and when she did it was only to protect those whom she loved— on this occasion she blazed out. "'I quite agree, sir. The thing is impossible, and I will come up and stop it. My niece is a very exceptional person, and I am not inclined to sit still while she throws herself away on those who will not appreciate her.' Charles worked his jaws. "'Considering she has only known your brother since Wednesday, and only met your father and mother at a stray hotel—could you possibly lower your voice? The shopman will overhear.' Esprit de classe, if one may coin the phrase, was strong in Mrs. Munt. She sat quivering while a member of the lower orders deposited a metal funnel, a saucepan, and a garden squirt beside the roll of oilcloth. "'Right behind?' "'Yes, sir.' And the lower orders vanished in a cloud of dust. "'I warn you, Paul hasn't a penny. It's useless.' "'No need to warn us, Mr. Wilcox, I assure you. The warning is all the other way. My niece has been very foolish, and I shall give her a good scolding and take her back to London with me.' "'He has to make his way out in Nigeria. He couldn't think of marrying for years, and when he does it must be a woman who can stand the climate, and is in other ways—why hasn't he told us?' "'Of course he's ashamed. He knows he's been a fool. 
And so he has, a damned fool. She grew furious. Whereas Miss Schlegel has lost no time in publishing the news. If I were a man, Mr. Wilcox, for that last remark, I'd box your ears. You're not fit to clean my niece's boots, to sit in the same room with her, and you dare, you actually dare. Oh, I decline to argue with such a person. All I know is she's spread the thing, and he hasn't. And my father's away, and I— And all that I know is— Might I finish my sentence, please? No. Charles clenched his teeth and sent the motor swerving all over the lane. She screamed. So they played the game of capping families, a round of which is always played when love would unite two members of our race. But they played it with unusual vigor, stating in so many words that Schlegels were better than Wilcox's, Wilcox's better than Schlegels. They flung decency aside. The man was young, the woman deeply stirred. In both a vein of coarseness was latent. Their quarrel was no more surprising than our most quarrels, inevitable at the time, incredible afterwards. But it was more than usually futile. A few minutes, and they were enlightened. The motor drew up at Howard's end, and Helen, looking very pale, ran out to meet her aunt. "'Aunt Julie, I have just had a telegram from Margaret. I—I I meant to stop your coming. It isn't—it's over.' The climax was too much for Mrs. Munt. She burst into tears. "'Oh, Aunt Julie, dear, don't! Don't let them know I've been so silly. It wasn't anything. Do bear up for my sake.' "'Paul!' cried Charles Wilcox, pulling his gloves off. "'Don't let them know. They are never to know.' "'Oh, my darling Helen!' "'Paul! Paul!' A very young man came out of the house. "'Paul, is there any truth in this?' "'I didn't. I don't.' "'Yes or no, man. Plain question, plain answer. Did or didn't Miss Schlegel?' "'Charles, dear,' said a voice from the garden. "'Charles, dear Charles, one doesn't ask plain questions. There aren't such things.' They were all silent. It was Mrs. Wilcox. She approached just as Helen's letter had described her, trailing noiselessly over the lawn, and there was actually a wisp of hay in her hands. She seemed to belong not to the young people and their motor, but to the house, and to the tree that overshadowed it. One knew that she worshipped the past, and that the instinctive wisdom the past can alone bestow had descended upon her, that wisdom to which we give the clumsy name of aristocracy. High-born she might not be, but assuredly she cared about her ancestors, and let them help her. When she saw Charles angry, Paul frightened, and Mrs. Munt in tears, she heard her ancestors say, "'Separate those human beings who will hurt each other most. The rest can wait.' So she did not ask questions. Still less did she pretend that nothing had happened, as a competent society hostess would have done. She said, "'Miss Schlegel, would you take your aunt up to your room, or to my room, whichever you think best? Paul, do find Evie, and tell her lunch for six, but I'm not sure whether we shall all be downstairs for it.' And when they had obeyed her, she turned to her elder son, who still stood in the throbbing, stinking car, and smiled at him with tenderness, and without a word, turned away from him towards her flowers. "'Mother!' he called. 
Are you aware that Paul has been playing the fool again?' "'It's all right, dear. They have broken off the engagement.' "'Engagement?' "'They do not love any longer, if you prefer it put that way,' said Mrs. Wilcox, stooping down to smell a rose. End of chapter 3 Chapter 4 of Howard's End. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Howard's End by E. M. Forster. Chapter 4. Helen and her aunt returned to Wickham Place in a state of collapse, and for a little time Margaret had three invalids on her hands. Mrs. Munt soon recovered. She possessed to a remarkable degree the power of distorting the past, and before many days were over she had forgotten the part played by her own imprudence in the catastrophe. Even at the crisis she had cried, "'Thank goodness poor Margaret has saved this!' which during the journey to London evolved into— it had to be gone through by some one, which in its turn ripened into the permanent form of the one time I really did help Emily's girls was over the Wilcox business. But Helen was a more serious patient. New ideas had burst upon her like a thunderclap, and by them and by her reverberations she had been stunned. The truth was that she had fallen in love, not with an individual, but with a family. Before Paul arrived, she had, as it were, been tuned up into his key. The energy of the Wilcoxes had fascinated her, had created new images of beauty in her responsive mind. To be all day with them in the open air, to sleep at night under their roof, had seemed the supreme joy of life, and had led to that abandonment of personality that is a possible prelude to love. She had liked giving in to Mr. Wilcox, or Evie, or Charles— she had liked being told that her notions of life were sheltered or academic, that equality was nonsense, votes for women nonsense, socialism nonsense, art and literature, except when conducive to strengthening the character, nonsense. One by one the Schlegel fetishes had been overthrown, and though professing to defend them, she had rejoiced. When Mr. Wilcox said that one sound man of business did more good to the world than a dozen of your social reformers— she had swallowed the curious assertion without a gasp, and had leant back luxuriously among the cushions of his motor-car. When Charles said, "'Why be so polite to servants? They don't understand it,' she had not given the Schlegel retort of, "'If they don't understand it, I do.' No, she had vowed to be less polite to servants in the future. "'I am swathed in cant,' she thought, "'and it is good for me to be stripped of it.' and all that she thought or did or breathed was a quiet preparation for Paul. Paul was inevitable. Charles was taken up with another girl. Mr. Wilcox was so old, Evie so young, Mrs. Wilcox so different. Round the absent brother she began to throw the halo of romance, to irradiate him with all the splendor of those happy days, to feel that in him 
she should draw nearest to the robust ideal. He and she were about the same age, Evie said. Most people thought Paul handsomer than his brother. He was certainly a better shot, though not so good at golf. And when Paul appeared, flushed with the triumph of getting through an examination, and ready to flirt with any pretty girl, Helen met him halfway, or more than halfway, and turned towards him on the Sunday evening. He had been talking of his approaching exile in Nigeria, and he should have continued to talk of it, and allowed their guest to recover. But the heave of her bosom flattered him. Passion was possible, and he became passionate. Deep down in him something whispered, "'This girl would let you kiss her. You might not have such a chance again.' That was how it happened, or rather how Helen described it to her sister, using words even more unsympathetic than my own. But the poetry of that kiss, the wonder of it, the magic that there was in life for hours after it, who can describe that? It is so easy for an Englishman to sneer at these chance collisions of human beings. To the insular cynic and the insular moralist they offer an equal opportunity. It is so easy to talk of passing emotion, and how to forget how vivid the emotion was ere it passed. Our impulse to sneer, to forget, is at root a good one. We recognize that emotion is not enough, and that men and women are personalities capable of sustained relations, not mere opportunities for an electrical discharge. Yet we rate the impulse too highly. We do not admit that by collisions of this trivial sort, the doors of heaven may be shaken open. To Helen, at all events, her life was to bring nothing more intense than the embrace of this boy who played no part in it. He had drawn her out of the house, where there was danger of surprise and light. He had led her by a path he knew, until they stood under the column of the vast witch-elm. A man in the darkness, he had whispered, "'I love you,' when she was desiring love. In time his slender personality faded. The scene that he had evoked endured. In all the variable years that followed, she never saw the like of it again. "'I understand,' said Margaret. "'At least I understand as much as ever is understood of these things. Tell me now what happened on the Monday morning.' "'It was over at once.' "'How, Helen?' I was still happy while I dressed, but as I came downstairs I got nervous, and when I went into the dining-room I knew it was no good. There was Evie—I can't explain—managing the tea-urn, and Mr. Wilcox reading the Times. Was Paul there? Yes, and Charles was talking to him about the stocks and shares, and he looked frightened. By slight indications the sisters could convey much to each other. Margaret saw horror latent in the scene, and Helen's next remark did not surprise her. Somehow, when that kind of man looks frightened, it is too awful. It is all right for us to be frightened, or for men of another sort—father, for instance—but for men like that. When I saw all the others so placid, and Paul mad with terror in case I said the wrong thing, I felt for a moment that the whole Wilcox family was a fraud—just a wall of newspapers and motor-cars and golf-clubs—and that, if it fell, I should find nothing behind it but panic and emptiness. 
I don't think that. The Wilcoxes struck me as being genuine people, particularly the wife. No, I don't really think that. But Paul was so broad-shouldered. All kinds of extraordinary things made it worse, and I knew that it would never do—never. I said to him after breakfast, when the others were practising strokes, we rather lost our heads. And he looked better at once, though frightfully ashamed. He began a speech about having no money to marry on, but it hurt him to make, and I stopped him. Then he said, I must beg your pardon over this, Miss Schlegel. I can't think what came over me last night. And I said, Nor what over me? Never mind. And then we parted. At least, until I remembered that I had written straight off to tell you the night before, and that frightened him again. I asked him to send a telegram for me, for he knew you would be coming, or something. And he tried to get hold of the motor, but Charles and Mr. Wilcox wanted it to go to the station. And Charles offered to send the telegram for me. And then I had to say that the telegram was of no consequence, for Paul said Charles might read it, and, though I wrote it out several times, he always said people would suspect something. He took it himself at last, pretending that he must walk down to get cartridges, and what with one thing and the other it was not handed in at the post-office until too late. It was the most terrible morning. Paul disliked me more and more, and Evie talked cricket averages until I nearly screamed. I cannot think how I stood her all the other days. At last Charles and his father started for the station, and then came your telegram warning me that Aunt Julie was coming by that train. And Paul, oh, rather horrible, said that I had muddled it. But Mrs. Wilcox knew. Knew what? Everything. Though we neither of us had told her a word. And known all along, I think. Oh, she must have overheard you. I suppose so. But it seemed wonderful. When Charles and Aunt Julie drove up calling each other names— Mrs. Wilcox stepped in from the garden and made everything less terrible. Ugh! But it has been a disgusting business. To think that— She sighed. To think that because you and a young man meet for a moment, there must be all these telegrams and anger, supplied Margaret. Helen nodded. I've often thought about it, Helen. It's one of the most interesting things in the world— the truth is that there is a great outer life that you and I have never touched—a life in which telegrams and anger count. Personal relations, that we think supreme, are not supreme there. Their love means marriage settlements, death, death duties. So far I'm clear. But here my difficulty. This outer life, though obviously horrid, often seems the real one. There's grit in it. It does breed character. Do personal relations lead to sloppiness in the end? Oh, Meg, that's what I felt, only not so clearly when the Wilcoxes were so competent, and seemed to have their hands on all the ropes. Don't you feel it now? I remember Paul at breakfast, said Helen quietly. I shall never forget him. He had nothing to fall back on. I know that personal relations are the real life, for ever and ever. Amen. So the Wilcox episode fell into the background, 
leaving behind it memories of sweetness and horror that mingled, and the sisters pursued the life that Helen had commended. They talked to each other, and to other people. They filled the tall, thin house at Wickham Place with those whom they liked or could befriend. They even attended public meetings. In their own fashion they cared deeply about politics, though not as politicians would have us care. They desired that public life should mirror whatever is good in the life within. Temperance, tolerance, and sexual equality were intelligible cries to them. Whereas they did not follow our forward policy in Tibet with the keen attention that it merits, and would at times dismiss the whole British Empire with a puzzled, if reverent, sigh. Not out of them are the shows of history erected. The world would be a grey, bloodless place were it entirely composed of mishlegals. But the world being what it is, perhaps they shine out in it like stars. A WORD ON THEIR ORIGIN They were not English to the backbone, as their aunt had piously asserted. But on the other hand, they were not Germans of the dreadful sort. Their father had belonged to a type that was more prominent in Germany fifty years ago than now. He was not the aggressive German, so dear to the English journalist, nor the domestic German, so dear to the English wit. If one classed him at all, it would be as the countrymen of Hegel and Kant, as the idealist, inclined to be dreamy, whose imperialism was the imperialism of the air. Not that his life had been inactive. He had fought like blazes against Denmark, Austria, France. But he had fought without visualizing the results of victory. A hint of the truth broke out on him after Sedan, when he saw the dyed moustaches of Napoleon going grey, another when he entered Paris, and saw the smashed windows of the Tuileries. Peace came. It was all very immense. One had turned into an empire. But he knew that some quality had vanished for which not all Alsace-Lorraine could compensate him. Germany a commercial power, Germany a naval power, Germany with colonies here and a forward policy there, and legitimate aspirations in the other place might appeal to others, and be fitly served by them. For his own part, he abstained from the fruits of victory, and naturalized himself in England. The more earnest members of his family never forgave him, and knew that his children, though scarcely English of the dreadful sort, would never be German to the backbone. He had obtained work in one of our provincial universities, and there married poor Emily, or die Englanderin, as the case may be. And as she had money, they proceeded to London, and came to know a good many people. But his gaze was always fixed beyond the sea. It was his hope that the clouds of materialism obscuring the fatherland would part in time, and the mild intellectual light re-emerge. "'Do you imply that we Germans are stupid, Uncle Ernst?' exclaimed a haughty and magnificent nephew. Uncle Ernst replied, "'To my mind. You use the intellect, but you no longer care about it. That I call stupidity.' As the haughty nephew did not follow, he continued, "'You only care about the things that you can use, and therefore arrange them in the following order. Money, supremely useful. Intellect, rather useful. Imagination, of no use at all. No,' for the other had protested, "'your pan-Germanism is no more imaginative then is our imperialism over here. It is the vice of a vulgar mind to be thrilled by bigness, 
to think that a thousand square miles are a thousand times more wonderful than one square mile, and that a million square miles are almost the same as heaven. That is not imagination. No, it kills it. When their poets over here try to celebrate bigness, they are dead at once, and naturally. Your poets, too, are dying, your philosophers, your musicians, to whom Europe has listened for two hundred years. Gone. Gone with the little courts that nurtured them. Gone with Esterhaz and Weimar. What? What's that? Your universities? Oh, yes, you have learned men, who collect more facts than do the learned men of England. They collect facts, and facts, and empires of facts. But which of them will rekindle the light within? To all this Margaret listened, sitting on the haughty nephew's knee. It was a unique education for the little girls. The haughty nephew would be at Wickham Place one day, bringing with him an even haughtier wife, both convinced that Germany was appointed by God to govern the world. Aunt Julie would come the next day, convinced that Great Britain had been appointed to the same post by the same authority. Were both these loud-voiced parties right? On one occasion they had met, and Margaret with clasped hands had implored them to argue the subject out in her presence, whereat they blushed and began to talk about the weather. "'Papa!' she cried. She was a most offensive child. "'Why will they not discuss this most clear question?' Her father, surveying the parties grimly, replied that he did not know. Putting her head on one side, Margaret then remarked, "'To me one of two things is very clear. Either God does not know his own mind about England and Germany, or else these do not know the mind of God.' A hateful little girl, but at thirteen she had grasped a dilemma that most people travel through life without perceiving. Her brain darted up and down. It grew pliant and strong. Her conclusion was that any human being lies nearer to the unseen than any organization, and from this she never varied. Helen advanced along the same lines, though with a more irresponsible tread. In character she resembled her sister, but she was pretty, and so apt to have a more amusing time. People gathered round her more readily, especially when they were new acquaintances, and she did enjoy a little homage very much. When their father died and they ruled alone at Wickham Place, she often absorbed the whole of the company, while Margaret—both were tremendous talkers—fell flat. Neither sister bothered about this. Helen never apologized afterwards. Margaret did not feel the slightest rancor. But looks have their influence upon character. The sisters were alike as little girls, but at the time of the Wilcox episode their methods were beginning to diverge. The younger was rather apt to entice people, and in enticing them, to be herself enticed. The elder went straight ahead, and accepted an occasional failure as part of the game. Little need be premised about Tibby. He was now an intelligent man of sixteen, but dyspeptic and difficile. End of chapter 4 
Chapter Five of Howard's End. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Howard's End, by E. M. Forster. Chapter Five. It will be generally admitted that Beethoven's Fifth Symphony is the most sublime noise that has ever penetrated into the ear of man. All sorts and conditions are satisfied by it. Whether you are like Mrs. Munt, and tap surreptitiously when the tunes come—of course, not so as to disturb the others—or like Helen, who can see heroes and shipwrecks in the music's flood—or like Margaret, who can only see the music— or like Tibby, who is profoundly versed in counterpoint, and holds the full score open on his knee. Or like their cousin, Fräulein Mosebach, who remembers all the time that Beethoven is echt Deutsch. Or like Fräulein Mosebach's young man, who can remember nothing but Fräulein Mosebach. In any case, the passion of your life becomes more vivid, and you are bound to admit that such a noise is cheap at two shillings. It is cheap even if you hear it in the Queen's Hall, dreariest music-room in London, though not as dreary as the Free Trade Hall, Manchester, and even if you sit on the extreme left of that hall, so that the brass bumps at you before the rest of the orchestra arrives, it is still cheap. "'Who is Margaret talking to?' said Mrs. Munt, at the conclusion of the first movement. She was again in London on a visit to Wickham Place." Helen looked down the long line of their party, and said that she did not know. "'Would it be some young man or other whom she takes an interest in?' "'I expect so,' Helen replied. Music enwrapped her, and she could not enter into the distinction that divides young men whom one takes an interest in from young men whom one knows. "'You girls are so wonderful in always having—oh, dear, one mustn't talk.' for the andante had begun. Very beautiful, but bearing a family likeness to all the other beautiful andantes that Beethoven had written, and to Helen's mind rather disconnecting the heroes and shipwrecks of the first movement from the heroes and goblins of the third. She heard the tune through once, and then her attention wandered, and she gazed at the audience, or the organ, or the architecture. Much did she censure the attenuated cupids who encircled the ceiling of the Queen's Hall, inclining each to each with vapid gesture, and clad in sallow pantaloons on which the October sunlight struck. "'How awful to marry a man like those cupids!' thought Helen. Here Beethoven started decorating his tune, so she heard him through once more, and then she smiled at her cousin Frida. But Frida, listening to classical music, could not respond. Herr Lysik, too, looked as if wild horses could not make him inattentive. There were lines across his forehead, his lips were parted, his pince-nez at right angles to his nose, and he had laid a thick white hand on either knee. And next to her was Aunt Julie, so British and wanting to tap. How interesting that row of people was! What diverse influences had gone to the making! Here Beethoven, after humming and hawing with great sweetness, said, Hey-ho, and the andante came to an end. Applause, and a round of Wunderschöning and Prachtvolleying from the German contingent. Margaret started talking to her new young man. 
Helen said to her aunt, "'Now comes the wonderful movement. First of all the goblins, and then a trio of elephants dancing.' And Tibby implored the company generally to look out for the transitional passage on the drum. "'On the what, dear?' "'On the drum, Aunt Julie.' "'No, look out for the part where you think you have done with the goblins, and they come back,' breathed Helen, as the music started with the goblin walking quietly over the universe from end to end. Others followed him. They were not aggressive creatures. It was that that made them so terrible to Helen. They merely observed in passing that there was no such thing as splendor or heroism in the world. After the interlude of elephants dancing, they returned— and made the observation for the second time. Helen could not contradict them, for once, at all events, she had felt the same, and had seen the reliable walls of youth collapse. Panic and emptiness. Panic and emptiness. The goblins were right. Her brother raised his finger. It was the transitional passage on the drum. For, as if things were going too far— Beethoven took hold of the goblins and made them do what he wanted. He appeared in person. He gave them a little push, and they began to walk in major key instead of in minor, and then he blew with his mouth and they were scattered. Gusts of splendor, gods and demigods contending with vast swords, color and fragrance broadcast on the field of battle, magnificent victory, magnificent death. Oh, it all burst before the girl— and she even stretched out her gloved hands as if it was tangible. Any fate was titanic, any conquest desirable. Conqueror and conquered would alike be applauded by the angels of the utmost stars. And the goblins? They had not really been there at all. They were only the phantoms of cowardice and unbelief. One healthy human impulse would dispel them. Men like the Wilcoxes, or President Roosevelt— would say yes. Beethoven knew better. The goblins really had been there. They might return. And they did. It was as if the splendor of life might boil over, and waste to steam and froth. In its dissolution one heard the terrible, ominous note, and a goblin, with increased malignity, walked quietly over the universe from end to end. Panic and emptiness! Panic and emptiness! Even the flaming ramparts of the world might fall. Beethoven chose to make all right in the end. He built the ramparts up. He blew with his mouth for the second time, and again the goblins were scattered. He brought back the gusts of splendor, the heroism, the youth, the magnificence of life and of death, and amid vast roarings of a superhuman joy, he led his fifth symphony to its conclusion. But the goblins were there they could return. He had said so bravely, and that is why one can trust Beethoven when he says other things. Helen pushed her way out during the applause. She desired to be alone. The music summed up to her all that had happened or could happen in her career. She read it as a tangible statement, which could never be superseded. The notes meant this and that to her, and they could have no other meaning— and life could have no other meaning. She pushed right out of the building, and walked slowly down the outside staircase, breathing the autumnal air, and then she strolled home. "'Margaret,' called Mrs. Munt, "'is Helen all right?' 
Oh, yes. She is always going away in the middle of a program, said Tibby. The music has evidently moved her deeply, said Fräulein Mosebach. Excuse me, said Margaret's young man, who had for some time been preparing a sentence. But that lady has, uh, quite inadvertently, taken my umbrella. Oh, good gracious me! I am so sorry. Uh, Tibby, run after Helen. I shall miss the four serious songs if I do. Tibby, love, you must go. It isn't of any consequence, said the young man, in truth a little uneasy about his umbrella. But of course it is. Tibby! Oh, Tibby! Tibby rose to his feet, and wilfully caught his person on the backs of the chairs. By the time he had tipped up the seat and found his hat, and had deposited his full score in safety, it was too late to go after Helen. The four serious songs had begun, and one could not move during their performance. "'My sister is so careless,' whispered Margaret. "'Not at all,' replied the young man, but his voice was dead and cold. "'If you would give me your address—' "'Oh, not at all, not at all.' And he wrapped his greatcoat over his knees. Then the four serious songs rang shallow in Margaret's ears. Brahms, for all his grumbling and grizzling, had never guessed what it felt like to be suspected of stealing an umbrella. For this fool of a young man thought that she and Helen and Tibby had been playing the confidence trick on him, and that if he gave his address they would break into his room some midnight or other, and steal his walking-stick, too. Most ladies would have laughed, but Margaret really minded, for it gave her a glimpse into squalor. To trust people is a luxury in which only the wealthy can indulge. The poor cannot afford it. As soon as Brahms had grunted himself out, she gave him her card, and said, "'That is where we live. If you preferred, you could call for the umbrella after the concert. But I didn't like to trouble you when it has all been our fault.' His face brightened a little when he saw that Wickham Place was W. It was sad to see him corroded with suspicion, and yet not daring to be impolite, in case these well-dressed people were honest, after all. She took it as a good sign that he said to her, "'It's a fine programme this afternoon, is it not?' For this was the remark with which he had originally opened, before the umbrella intervened. "'The Beethoven's fine,' said Margaret, who was not a female of the encouraging type. "'I don't like the Brahms, though.' nor the Mendelssohn that came first, and, ugh, I don't like this Elgar that's coming. "'What, what?' called Herr Liesick, overhearing. "'The pomp and circumstance will not be fine.' "'Oh, Margaret, you tiresome girl!' cried her aunt. "'Here I have been persuading Herr Liesick to stop for pomp and circumstance, and you are undoing all my work. I am so anxious for him to hear what we are doing in music.' Oh, you mustn't run down our English composers, Margaret. For my part, I have heard the composition at Stettin, said Fräulein Marsebach, on two occasions. It is dramatic, a little. Friedi, you despise English music. You know you do. And English art and English literature, except Shakespeare, and he's a German. <laughs> Very well, Friedi, you may go. The lovers laughed and glanced at each other. 
Moved by a common impulse, they rose to their feet and fled from pomp and circumstance. "'We have this call to pay in Finsbury Circus, it is true,' said Herr Lysik, as he edged past her and reached the gangway just as the music started. "'Margaret!' loudly whispered by Aunt Julie. "'Margaret! Margaret! Fräulein Mausebach has left her beautiful little bag behind her on the seat.' Sure enough, there was Frida's reticule, containing her address-book, her pocket-dictionary, her map of London, and her money. "'Oh, what a bother! What a family we are! Frida!' "'Hush!' said all those who thought the music fine. "'But it's the number they want in Finsbury Circus.' "'Might I—couldn't I—' said the suspicious young man, and got very red. "'Oh, I would be so grateful!' He took the bag, money clinking inside it, and slipped up the gangway with it. He was just in time to catch them at the swing door, and he received a pretty smile from the German girl, and a fine bow from her cavalier. He returned to his seat upsides with the world. The trust that they had reposed in him was trivial, but he felt that it cancelled his mistrust for them, and that probably he would not be had over his umbrella. This young man had been had in the past badly, perhaps overwhelmingly, and now most of his energies went in defending himself against the unknown. But this afternoon, perhaps on account of music, he perceived that one must slack off occasionally, or what is the good of being alive? Wickham Place, W., though a risk, was as safe as most things, and he would risk it. So when the concert was over and Margaret said, "'We live quite near. I am going there now.' "'Could you walk around with me, and we'll find your umbrella?' He said, "'Thank you,' peaceably, and followed her out of the Queen's Hall. She wished that he was not so anxious to hand a lady downstairs, or to carry a lady's programme for her. His class was near enough her own for its manners to vex her. But she found him interesting on the whole. Everyone interested the Schlegels on the whole at that time. And while her lips talked culture— her heart was planning to invite him to tea. "'How tired one gets after music,' she began. "'Do you find the atmosphere of Queen's Hall oppressive?' "'Yes, horribly.' "'But surely the atmosphere of Covent Garden is even more oppressive?' "'Do you go there much?' "'When my work permits, I attend the gallery for the Royal Opera.' Helen would have exclaimed, "'So do I! I love the gallery!' and thus have endeared herself to the young man. Helen could do these things. But Margaret had an almost morbid horror of drawing people out, of making things go. She had been to the gallery at Covent Garden, but she did not attend it, preferring the more expensive seats. Still less did she love it. So she made no reply. "'This year I have been three times. To Faust, Tosca, and—' Was it Tannhauser or Tannhäuser? Better not risk the word. Margaret disliked Tosca and Faust, and so for one reason and another they walked on in silence, chaperoned by the voice of Mrs. Munt, who was getting into difficulties with her nephew. "'I do in a way remember the passage, Tibby, but when every instrument is so beautiful, it is difficult to pick out one thing rather than another.' I am sure that you and Helen take me to the very nicest concerts. Not a dull note from beginning to end. 
I only wish that our German friends would have stayed till it finished. But surely you haven't forgotten the drums steadily beating on the low sea, Aunt Julie, came Tibby's voice. No one could. It's unmistakable. A specially loud part? hazarded Mrs. Munt. Of course, I do not go in for being musical, she added, the shot failing. I only care for music, a very different thing. But still, I will say this for myself, I do know when I like a thing and when I don't. Some people are the same about pictures. They can go into a picture gallery, Miss Conder can, and say straight off what they feel, all round the wall. I never could do that. But music is so different to pictures, to my mind. When it comes to music, I am as safe as houses, and I assure you, Tibby, I am by no means pleased by everything. There was a thing, uh, something about a fawn, in French, which Helen went into ecstasies over, but I thought it most tinkling and superficial, and said so, and I held to my opinion, too. "'Do you agree?' asked Margaret. "'Do you think music is so different to pictures?' "'I—I I should have thought so. Kind of,' he said. "'So should I. Now my sister declares they're just the same. We have great arguments over it. She says I'm dense. I say she's sloppy.' Getting under way, she cried. "'Now doesn't it seem absurd to you? What is the good of the arts if they are interchangeable?' What is the good of the ear if it tells you the same as the eye? Helen's one aim is to translate tunes into the language of painting, and pictures into the language of music. It's very ingenious, and she says several pretty things in the process. But what's gained, I'd like to know? Oh, it's all rubbish, radically false. If Monet's really Debussy, and Debussy's really Monet, neither gentleman is worth his salt. That's my opinion." Evidently, these sisters quarrelled. "'Now, this very symphony that we've just been having, she won't let it alone. She labels it with meanings from start to finish, turns it into literature. I wonder if the day will ever return when music will be treated as music. Yet I don't know. There's my brother, behind us. He treats music as music, and, oh, my goodness, he makes me angrier than any one, simply furious. With him I daren't even argue.' an unhappy family, if talented. But, of course, the real villain is Wagner. He has done more than any man in the nineteenth century towards the muddling of arts. I do feel that music is in a very serious state just now, though extraordinarily interesting. Every now and then in history there do come these terrible geniuses, like Wagner, who stir up all the wells of thought at once. For a moment it's splendid. Such a splash as never was— but afterwards, such a lot of mud in the wells, as it were, they communicate with each other too easily now, and not one of them will run quite clear. That's what Wagner's done. Her speeches fluttered away from the young man like birds. If only he could talk like this, he would have caught the world. Oh, to acquire culture! Oh, to pronounce foreign names correctly! Oh, to be well informed, discoursing at ease on every subject that a lady started! But it would take one years. With an hour at lunch and a few shattered hours in the evening, how was it possible to catch up with leisured women who had been reading steadily from childhood? His brain might be full of names. He might have even heard of Monet and Debussy, 
The trouble was that he could not string them together into a sentence, he could not make them tell, he could not quite forget about his stolen umbrella. Yes, the umbrella was the real trouble. Behind Monet and Debussy the umbrella persisted, with the steady beat of a drum. "'I suppose my umbrella will be all right,' he was thinking. "'I don't really mind about it. I will think about music instead. I suppose my umbrella will be all right.' Earlier in the afternoon he had worried about seats. Ought he to have paid as much as two shillings? Earlier still he had wondered, shall I try to do without a program? There had always been something to worry him ever since he could remember, always something that distracted him in the pursuit of beauty. For he did pursue beauty, and therefore Margaret's speeches did flutter away from him like birds. Margaret talked ahead, occasionally saying, "'Don't you think so? Don't you feel the same?' And once she stopped and said, "'Oh, do interrupt me!' which terrified him. She did not attract him, though she filled him with awe. Her figure was meagre, her face seemed all teeth and eyes, her references to her sister and brother were uncharitable. For all her cleverness and culture, she was probably one of those soulless, atheistical women who have been so shown up by Miss Corelli. It was surprising, and alarming, that she should suddenly say, I do hope that you'll come in and have some tea. I do hope that you'll come in and have some tea. We should be so glad. I have dragged you so far out of your way. They had arrived at Wickham Place. The sun had set, and the backwater, in deep shadow, was filling with a gentle haze. To the right of the fantastic skyline of the flats towered black against the hues of evening. To the left the older houses raised a square-cut, irregular parapet against the grey. Margaret fumbled for her latch-key. Of course she had forgotten it. So grasping her umbrella by its ferrule, she leant over the area and tapped the dining-room window. "'Helen! Let us in!' "'All right,' said a voice. "'You've been taking this gentleman's umbrella.' "'Taking a what?' said Helen, opening the door. "'Oh, what's that? Oh, do come in. How do you do?' "'Helen, you must not be so ramshackly. You took this gentleman's umbrella away from Queen's Hall, and he has had the trouble of coming for it.' "'Oh, I am so sorry!' cried Helen, all her hair flying. She had pulled off her hat as soon as she returned, and had flung herself into the big dining-room chair. "'I do nothing but steal umbrellas. I am so very sorry. Do come in and choose one. Is yours a hooky or a nobbly? Mine's a nobbly. At least, I think it is." The light was turned on, and they began to search the hall, Helen, who had abruptly parted with the Fifth Symphony, commenting with shrill little cries. "'Don't you talk, Meg! You stole an old gentleman's silk-top hat!' "'Yes, she did, Aunt Julie. It is a positive fact. She thought it was a muff. Oh, heavens! I've knocked the in-and-out card down. Where's Frida? Tibby, why don't you ever—' No, I can't remember what I was going to say. That wasn't it. But do tell the maids to hurry tea up. What about this umbrella? She opened it. No, it's all gone along the seams. It's an appalling umbrella. It must be mine. But it was not. He took it from her, murmured a few words of thanks, and then fled with the lilting step of the clerk. But if you will stop, cried Margaret. Now, Helen, how stupid you've been! Whatever have I done? Don't you see that you frightened him away? 
I meant him to stop to tea. You oughtn't to talk about stealing or holes in an umbrella. I saw his nice eyes getting so miserable. No, it's not a bit of good now. For Helen had darted into the street, shouting, Oh, do stop! I dare say it is all for the best, opined Mrs. Munt. We know nothing about the young man, Margaret, and your drawing-room is full of very tempting little things. But Helen cried, Aunt Julie, how can you? You make me more and more ashamed. I'd rather he had been a thief and taken all the apostle spoons than that I— Well, I must shut the front door, I suppose. One more failure for Helen. Yes, I think the apostle spoons could have gone as rent, said Margaret. Seeing that her aunt did not understand, she added, You remember rent. It was one of father's words, rent to the ideal, to his own faith in human nature. You remember how he would trust strangers, and if they fooled him he would say, It's better to be fooled than to be suspicious. That the confidence trick is the work of the man, but the want of confidence trick is the work of the devil. I remember something of the sort now, said Mrs. Munt, rather tartly, for she longed to add, It was lucky that her father married a wife with money. But this was unkind, and she contented herself with, Why, he might have stolen the little Ricketts picture as well. Better that he had, said Helen stoutly. No, I agree with Aunt Julie, said Margaret. I'd rather mistrust people than lose my little Ricketts. There are limits. Their brother, finding the incident commonplace, had stolen upstairs to see whether there were scones for tea. He warmed the teapot almost too deftly, rejected the orange pico that the parlour-maid had provided, poured in five spoonfuls of a superior blend, filled up with a really boiling water, and now called to the ladies to be quick or they would lose the aroma. "'All right, Auntie Tibby,' called Helen, while Margaret, thoughtful again, said, "'In a way, I wish we had a real boy in the house, the kind of boy who cares for men. It would make entertaining so much easier.' "'So do I,' said her sister. "'Tibby only cares for cultured females singing Brahms.' And when they joined him, she said rather sharply, "'Why didn't you make that young man welcome, Tibby? You must do the host a little, you know. You ought to have taken his hat and coaxed him into stopping, instead of letting him be swamped by screaming women.' Tibby sighed and drew a long strand of hair over his forehead. "'Oh, it's no good-looking superior. I mean what I say.' Oh, "'Leave Tibby alone,' said Margaret, who could not bear her brother to be scolded. "'Here's the house a regular hen-coop,' grumbled Helen. "'Oh, my dear!' protested Mrs. Munt. "'How can you say such dreadful things? The number of men you get here has always astonished me. If there is any danger, it's the other way round.' "'Yes, but it's the wrong sort of men, Helen means.' "'No, I don't,' corrected Helen. "'We get the right sort of man, but the wrong side of him. And I say that's Tibby's fault.' There ought to be a something about the house, and—I don't know what. A touch of the W's, perhaps? Helen put out her tongue. Who are the W's? asked Tibby. The W's are things I and Meg and Aunt Julie know about, and you don't, so there. I suppose that ours is a female house, said Margaret, and one must just accept it. No, Aunt Julie, I don't mean that this house is full of women. 
I am trying to say something much more clever. I mean that it was irrevocably feminine, even in father's time. Now I'm sure you understand. Well, I'll give you another example. It'll shock you, but I don't care. Suppose Queen Victoria gave a dinner-party, and that the guests had been Leighton, Millet, Swinburne, Rossetti, Meredith, Fitzgerald, etc. Do you suppose that the atmosphere of that dinner would have been artistic? Heavens, no! The very chairs on which they sat would have seen to that. So with our house. It must be feminine, and all we can do is to see that it isn't effeminate. Just as another house that I can mention, but I won't, sounded irrevocably masculine, and all its inmates can do is to see that it isn't brutal. "'That house being the W's house, I presume,' said Tibby. "'You're not going to be told about the W's, my child,' Helen cried. "'So don't you think it? And on the other hand, I don't the least mind if you find out. So don't think you've done anything clever in either case. Give me a cigarette.' "'You do what you can for the house,' said Margaret. "'The drawing-room reeks of smoke. "'If you smoked, too, the house might suddenly turn masculine. "'Atmosphere is probably a question of touch and go. "'Even at Queen Victoria's dinner-party, if something had been just a little different, "'perhaps if she'd worn a clinging liberty tea-gown instead of a magenta satin, "'with an Indian shawl over her shoulders, "'fastened at the bosom with a cairngorm pin.' Bursts of disloyal laughter—you must remember that they are half-German—greeted these suggestions, and Margaret said pensively, "'How inconceivable it would be if the royal family cared about art!' And the conversation drifted away and away, and Helen's cigarette turned to a spot in the darkness, and the great flats opposite were sown with lighted windows, which vanished and were relit again, and vanished incessantly. Beyond them the thoroughfare roared gently a tide that can never be quiet, while in the east, invisible behind the smokes of Wapping, the moon was rising. "'That reminds me, Margaret. We might have taken that young man into the dining-room at all events. Only the majolica plate, and that is so firmly set in the wall. I am really distressed that he had no tea.' For that little incident had impressed the three women more than might be supposed. It remained as a goblin football— as a hint that all is not for the best in the best of all possible worlds, and that beneath these superstructures of wealth and art there wanders an ill-fed boy, who has recovered his umbrella indeed, but who has left no address behind him, and no name. End of chapter 5《Chapter Six of Howard's End》This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Howard's End by E. M. Forster. Chapter Six We are not concerned with the very poor, they are unthinkable and only to be approached by the statistician or the poet. This story deals with gentlefolk, or with those who are obliged to pretend that they are gentlefolk. The boy, Leonard Bast, stood at the extreme verge of gentility. He was not in the abyss, but he could see it, and at times people whom he knew had dropped in, 
and counted no more. He knew that he was poor, and would admit it. He would have sooner died than confess any inferiority to the rich. This may be splendid of him. But he was inferior to most rich people, there is not the least doubt of it. He was not as courteous as the average rich man, nor as intelligent, nor as healthy, nor as lovable. His mind and his body had been alike underfed, because he was poor, and because he was modern they were always craving better food. Had he lived some centuries ago, in the brightly colored civilizations of the past, he would have had a definite status, his rank and his income would have corresponded. But in his day the angel of democracy had arisen, enshadowing the classes with leathern wings, and proclaiming, All men are equal. All men, that is to say, who possess umbrellas. And so he was obliged to assert gentility, lest he slipped into the abyss where nothing counts, and the statements of democracy are inaudible. As he walked away from Wickham Place, his first care was to prove that he was as good as the Miss Schlegels. Obscurely wounded in his pride, he tried to wound them in return. They were probably not ladies. Would real ladies have asked him to tea? They were certainly ill-natured and cold. At each step his feeling of superiority increased. Would a real lady have talked about stealing an umbrella? Perhaps they were thieves, after all, and if he had gone into the house, they could have clapped a chloroformed handkerchief over his face. He walked on complacently as far as the Houses of Parliament. There an empty stomach asserted itself, and told him he was a fool. "'Evening, Mr. Bast.' "'Evening, Mr. Deltry.' "'Nice evening.' "'Evening.' Mr. Deltry, a fellow clerk, passed on, and Leonard stood wondering whether he would take the tram as far as a penny would take him, or whether he would walk. He decided to walk. It is no good giving in, and he had spent money enough at Queen's Hall, and he walked over Westminster Bridge, in front of St. Thomas's Hospital, and through the immense tunnel that passes under the south-western main line at Vauxhall. In the tunnel he paused and listened to the roar of the trains. A sharp pain darted through his head, and he was conscious of the exact form of his eye-sockets. He pushed on for another mile, and did not slacken speed until he stood at the entrance of a road called Camellia Road, which was, at present, his home. Here he stopped again, and glanced suspiciously to right and left, like a rabbit that is going to bolt into its hole. A block of flats, constructed with extreme cheapness, towered on either hand. Farther down the road two more blocks were being built, and beyond these an old house was being demolished to accommodate another pair. It was the kind of scene that may be observed all over London, whatever the locality, bricks and mortar rising and falling, with the restlessness of the water in a fountain, as the city receives more and more men upon her soil. Camellia Road would soon stand out like a fortress, and command for a little an extensive view. Only for a little. Plans were out for the erection of flats in Magnolia Road also, and again a few years, and all the flats in either road might be pulled down, and new buildings, of a vastness at present unimaginable, might arise where they had fallen. "'Evening, Mr. Bast.' "'Evening, Mr. Cunningham.' "'Very serious thing, this decline of the birth-rate in Manchester.' "'I beg your pardon?' 
"'Very serious thing, this decline of the birth-rate in Manchester,' repeated Mr. Cunningham, tapping the Sunday paper, in which the calamity in question had just been announced to him. "'Ah, yes,' said Leonard, who was not going to let on that he had not bought a Sunday paper. "'This kind of thing goes on. The population of England will be stationary in 1960.' "'You don't say so.' "'I call it a very serious thing, eh?' "'Good evening, Mr. Cunningham.' "'Good evening, Mr. Bast.' Then Leonard entered Block B of the flats, and turned, not upstairs, but down, into what is known to house agents as a semi-basement, and to other men as a cellar. He opened the door, and cried, "'Hello!' with the pseudo-geniality of the cockney. There was no reply. "'Hello!' he repeated. The sitting-room was empty, though the electric light had been left burning. A look of relief came over his face, and he flung himself into the armchair. The sitting-room contained, besides the armchair, two other chairs, a piano, a three-legged table, and a cosy corner. Of the walls, one was occupied by the window, the other by a draped mantel-shelf bristling with cupids. Opposite the window was the door, and beside the door a bookcase, while over the piano there extended one of the masterpieces of Maud Goodman. It was an amorous and not unpleasant little hole when the curtains were drawn and the lights turned on and the gas stove unlit. But it struck that shallow makeshift note that is so often heard in the modern dwelling-place. It had been too easily gained, and could be relinquished too easily. As Leonard was kicking off his boots, he jarred the three-legged table, and a photograph frame, honorably poised upon it, slid sideways, fell off into the fireplace, and smashed. He swore in a colorless sort of way, and picked the photograph up. It represented a young lady called Jackie, and had been taken at the time when young ladies called Jackie were often photographed with their mouths open. Teeth of dazzling whiteness extended along either of Jackie's jaws, and positively weighted her head sideways, so large were they, and so numerous. Take my word for it, that smile was simply stunning, and it is only you and I who will be fastidious, and complain that true joy begins in the eyes, and that the eyes of Jackie did not accord with her smile, but were anxious and hungry." Leonard tried to pull out the fragments of glass, and cut his fingers, and swore again. A drop of blood fell on the frame, another followed, spilling over on to the exposed photograph. He swore more vigorously, and dashed to the kitchen where he bathed his hands. The kitchen was the same size as the sitting-room, through it was a bedroom. This completed his home. He was renting the flat furnished, of all the objects that encumbered it, none were his own except the photograph frame the cupids, and the books. "'Damn! Damn! Damnation!' he murmured, together with such other words as he had learnt from older men. Then he raised his hand to his forehead, and said, "'Oh, damn it all!' which meant something different. He pulled himself together. He drank a little tea, black and silent, that still survived upon an upper shelf. He swallowed some dusty crumbs of cake. Then he went back to the sitting-room, settled himself anew, and began to read a volume of Ruskin. Seven miles to the north of Venice. How perfectly the famous chapter opens! How supreme its command of admonition and of poetry! 
the rich man is speaking to us from his gondola. Seven miles to the north of Venice, the banks of sand which near the city rise little above low watermark, attain by degrees a higher level, and knit themselves at last into fields of salt morass, raised here and there into shapeless mounds, and intercepted by narrow creeks of sea. Leonard was trying to form his style on Ruskin. He understood him to be the greatest master of English prose. He read forward steadily, occasionally making a few notes. Let us consider a little each of these characters in succession, and first, for of the shafts enough has been said already, what is very peculiar to the church, its luminousness. Was there anything to be learnt from this fine sentence? Could he adapt it to the needs of daily life? Could he introduce it, with modifications, when he next wrote a letter to his brother, the lay reader? For example, let us consider a little each of these characters in succession, and first, for of the absence of ventilation enough has been said already, what is very peculiar to this flat, its obscurity. Something told him that the modifications would not do, and that something, had he known it, was the spirit of English prose. My flat is dark as well as stuffy. Those were the words for him. And the voice in the gondola rolled on, piping melodiously of effort and self-sacrifice, full of high purpose, full of beauty, full even of sympathy and the love of men, yet somehow eluding all that was actual and insistent in Leonard's life. For it was the voice of one who had never been dirty or hungry, and had not guessed successfully what dirt and hunger are. Leonard listened to it with reverence. He felt that he was being done good to, and that if he kept on with Ruskin and the Queen's Hall concerts, and some pictures by Watts, he would one day push his head out of the grey waters and see the universe. He believed in sudden conversion—a belief which may be right, but which is peculiarly attractive to a half-baked mind. It is the bias of much popular religion. In the domain of business it dominates the stock exchange and becomes that bit of luck by which all successes and failures are explained. If only I had a bit of luck, the whole thing would come straight. He's got a most magnificent place down at Streatham, and a twenty HP fiat. But then, mind you, he's had luck. I'm sorry the wife's so late, but she never has any luck over catching trains. Leonard was superior to these people. He did believe in effort and in a steady preparation for the change that he desired. But of a heritage that may expand gradually, he had no conception. He hoped to come to culture suddenly, much as the revivalist hopes to come to Jesus. Those Miss Schlegels had come to it. They had done the trick. Their hands were upon the ropes once and for all. And meanwhile his flat was dark, as well as stuffy. Presently there was a noise on the staircase. He shut up Margaret's card in the pages of Ruskin, and opened the door. A woman entered, of whom it is simplest to say that she was not respectable. Her appearance was awesome. She seemed all strings and bell-pulls—ribbons, chains, bead necklaces that clinked and caught, and a boa of azure feathers hung around her neck, with the ends uneven. Her throat was bare. 
wound with a double row of pearls, her arms were bare to the elbows, and might again be detected at the shoulder, through cheap lace. Her hat, which was flowery, resembled those punnets covered with flannel which we sewed with mustard and cress in our childhood, and which germinated here yes, and there no. She wore it on the back of her head. As for her hair, or rather hairs, they are too complicated to describe, but one system went down her back, lying in a thick pad there, while another, created for a lighter destiny, rippled around her forehead. The face—the face does not signify. It was the face of the photograph, but older, and the teeth were not so numerous as the photographer has suggested, and certainly not so white. Yes, Jackie was past her prime, whatever that prime may have been. She was descending quicker than most women into the colourless years, and the look in her eyes confessed it. "'What ho!' said Leonard, greeting that apparition with much spirit, and helping it off with its boa. Jackie, in husky tones, replied, "'What ho!' "'Been out?' he asked. The question sounds superfluous, but it cannot have been really, for the lady answered, "'No,' adding, "'Oh, I'm so tired.' "'You tired?' "'Eh?' "'I'm tired.' said he, hanging the boa up. "'Oh, Len, I am so tired!' "'I've been to that classical concert I told you about,' said Leonard. "'What's that?' "'I came back as soon as it was over.' "'Anyone been round to our place?' asked Jackie. "'Not that I've seen. I met Mr. Cunningham outside, and we passed a few remarks.' "'What, not Mr. Cunningham?' Yes. Oh, you mean Mr. Cunningham. Yes, Mr. Cunningham. I've been out to tea at a lady friend's. Her secret being at last given to the world, and the name of the lady friend being even adumbrated, Jackie made no further experiments in the difficult and tiring art of conversation. She never had been a great talker. Even in her photographic days she had relied upon her smile and her figure to attract, and now that she was, "'On the shelf, on the shelf, boys, boys, I'm on the shelf,' she was not likely to find her tongue. Occasional bursts of song, of which the above is an example, still issued from her lips, but the spoken word was rare. She sat down on Leonard's knee, and began to fondle him. She was now a massive woman of thirty-three, and her weight hurt him, but he could not very well say anything. Then she said, "'Is that a book you're reading?' And he said, "'That's a book,' and drew it from her unreluctant grasp. Margaret's card fell out of it. It fell face downwards, and he murmured, "'Bookmarker.' "'Len!' "'What is it?' he asked, a little wearily for she had only one topic of conversation when she sat upon his knee. "'You do love me?' "'Jackie, you know that I do. How can you ask such questions?' "'But you do love me, Len, don't you?' "'Of course I do.' A pause. The other remark was still due. "'Len!' "'Well, what is it?' "'Len—' You will make it all right. I can't have you ask me that again, 
said the boy, flaring up into a sudden passion. "'I've promised to marry you when I'm of age, and that's enough. My word's my word. I've promised to marry you as soon as ever I'm twenty-one, and I can't keep on being worried. I've worries enough. It isn't likely I'd throw you over, let alone my word, when I've spent all this money. Besides, I'm an Englishman, and I never go back on my word. Jackie, do be reasonable. Of course I'll marry you. Only do stop badgering me. When's your birthday, Len? I've told you again and again, the eleventh of November next. Now get off my knee a bit. Someone must get supper, I suppose. Jackie went through to the bedroom and began to see to her hat. This meant blowing at it with short, sharp puffs. Leonard tidied up the sitting-room and began to prepare their evening meal. He put a penny into the slot of the gas-meter, and soon the flat was reeking with metallic fumes. Somehow he could not recover his temper, and all the time he was cooking he continued to complain bitterly. "'Really is too bad when a fellow isn't trusted. Makes one feel so wild. When I've pretended to the people here that you're my wife—all right, you shall be my wife. And I've bought you the ring to wear, and I've taken this flat furnished, and it's far more than I can afford. And yet you aren't content. And I've also not told the truth when I've written home." He lowered his voice. He'd stop it. In a tone of horror that was a little luxurious, he repeated, "'My brother'd stop it. I'm going against the whole world, Jackie.' "'That's what I am, Jackie. I don't take any heed of what anyone says. I just go straight forward, I do. It's always been my way. I'm not one of your weak, knock-kneed chaps. If a woman's in trouble, I don't leave her in the lurch. It's not my street. No thank you. I'll tell you another thing, too. I care a good deal about improving myself by means of literature and art, and so getting a wider outlook. For instance, when you came in I was reading Ruskin's Stones of Venice. I don't say this to boast but just to show you the kind of man I am. I can tell you I enjoyed that classical concert this afternoon." To all his moods Jackie remained equally indifferent. When supper was ready, and not before, she emerged from the bedroom, saying, "'But you do love me, don't you?' They began with a soup square, which Leonard had just dissolved in some hot water. It was followed by the tongue, a freckled cylinder of meat with a little jelly at the top and a great deal of yellow fat at the bottom, ending with another square dissolved in water—jelly, pineapple—which Leonard had prepared earlier in the day. Jackie ate contentedly enough, occasionally looking at her man with those anxious eyes, to which nothing else in her appearance corresponded, and which yet seemed to mirror her soul. And Leonard managed to convince his stomach that it was having a nourishing meal. After supper they smoked cigarettes and exchanged a few statements. She observed that her likeness had been broken. He found occasion to remark, for the second time, that he had come straight back home after the concert at Queen's Hall. Presently she sat upon his knee. The inhabitants of Camellia Road tramped to and fro outside the window, just on a level with their heads, and the family in the flat on the ground floor began to sing, "'Hark, my soul, it is the Lord.' That tune fairly gives me the hump," said Leonard. Jackie followed this, and said that, for her part, she thought it a lovely tune. No. I'll play you something lovely. Get up, dear, for a minute. 
He went to the piano and jingled out a little Greek. He played badly and vulgarly, but the performance was not without its effect, for Jackie said she thought she'd be going to bed. As she receded, a new set of interests possessed the boy, and he began to think of what had been said about music by that odd Miss Schlegel, the one that twisted her face about so when she spoke. Then the thoughts grew sad and envious. There was the girl named Helen who had pinched his umbrella, and the German girl who had smiled at him pleasantly, and Herr someone, and Aunt someone, and the brother—all, all with their hands on the ropes. They had all passed up that narrow, rich staircase at Wickham Place, to some ample room, whither he could never follow them, not if he read for ten hours a day. Oh, it was not good, this continual aspiration. Some are born cultured. The rest had better go in for whatever comes easy. To see life steadily and to see it whole was not for the likes of him. From the darkness beyond the kitchen a voice called, Len! You in bed? he asked, his forehead twitching. Hmm. All right. Presently she called him again. I must clean my boots ready for the morning, he answered. Presently she called him again. I rather want to get this chapter done. What? He closed his ears against her. What's that? All right, Jackie, nothing. I'm reading a book. What? What? He answered, catching her degraded deafness. Presently she called him again. Ruskin had visited Torcello by this time, and was ordering his gondoliers to take him to Murano. It occurred to him, as he glided over the whispering lagoons, that the power of nature could not be shortened by the folly, nor her beauty altogether saddened by the misery of such as Leonard. End of chapter 6《Chapter Seven of Howard's End This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Howard's End by E. M. Forster. Chapter Seven. Oh, Margaret! cried her aunt next morning. Such a most unfortunate thing has happened. I could not get you alone. The most unfortunate thing was not very serious. One of the flats in the ornate block opposite had been taken furnished by the Wilcox family, coming up, no doubt, in the hope of getting into London society. That Mrs. Munch should be the first to discover the misfortune was not remarkable, for she was so interested in the flats that she watched their every mutation with unwearying care. In theory, she despised them. They took away that old-world look. They cut off the sun. Flats house a flashy type of person. But if the truth had been known, she found her visits to Wickham Place twice as amusing since Wickham Mansions had arisen, and would, in a couple of days, learn more about them than her nieces in a couple of months, or her nephew in a couple of years. She would stroll across and make friends with the porters, and inquire what the rents were, exclaiming, for example, what a hundred and twenty for a basement you'll never get it and they would answer 
One can but try, madam. The passenger lifts, the provision lifts, the arrangement for coals, a great temptation for a dishonest porter, were all familiar matters to her, and perhaps a relief from the politico-economical aesthetic atmosphere that reigned at the Schlegels. Margaret received the information calmly, and did not agree that it would throw a cloud over poor Helen's life. "'Oh, but Helen isn't a girl with no interests,' she explained. "'She has plenty of other things and other people to think about. She made a full start with the Wilcoxes, and she'll be as willing as we are to have nothing more to do with them.' "'For a clever girl, dear, how very oddly you do talk! Helen'll have to have something more to do with them, now that they're all opposite. She may meet that Paul in the street. She cannot very well not bow.' "'Of course she must bow. But look here, let's do the flowers. I was going to say, the will to be interested in him has died, and what else matters? I look on that disastrous episode, over which you were so kind, as the killing of a nerve in Helen. It's dead, and she'll never be troubled with it again. The only things that matter are the things that interest one. Bowing, even calling and leaving cards, even a dinner-party— we can do all those things to the Wilcoxes, if they find it agreeable. But the other thing, the one important thing, never again. Don't you see?" Mrs. Munt did not see, and indeed Margaret was making a most questionable statement, that any emotion, any interest, once vividly aroused, can wholly die. "'I also have the honour to inform you that the Wilcoxes are bored with us. I didn't tell you at the time. It might have made you angry, and you had enough to worry you. But I wrote a letter to Mrs. W., and apologised for the trouble that Helen had given them. She didn't answer it. How very rude! I wonder. Or was it sensible? No, Margaret, most rude! In either case, one can class it as reassuring. Mrs. Munt sighed. She was going back to Swanage on the morrow, just as her nieces were wanting her most. Other regrets crowded upon her. For instance, how magnificently she would have cut Charles if she had met him face to face. She had already seen him giving an order to the porter, and very common he looked in a tall hat. But unfortunately his back was turned to her, and though she had cut his back she could not regard this as a telling snub. "'But you will be careful, won't you?' she exhorted. "'Oh, certainly! Fiendishly careful!' "'And Helen must be careful, too!' "'Careful over what?' cried Helen, at that moment coming into the room with her cousin. "'Nothing,' said Margaret, seized with a momentary awkwardness. "'Careful over what, Aunt Julie?' Mrs. Munt assumed a cryptic air. It is only that a certain family, whom we know by name, but do not mention, as you said yourself last night after the concert, have taken the flat opposite from the Mathesons, where the plants are in the balcony. Helen began some laughing reply, and then disconcerted them all by blushing. Mrs. Munt was so disconcerted that she exclaimed, "'What, Helen, you don't mind them coming, do you?' and deepened the blush to crimson. "'Of course I don't mind,' said Helen, a little crossly. 
It is that you and Meg are both so absurdly grave about it. Where there's nothing to be grave about at all." "'I'm not grave,' protested Margaret, a little cross in her turn. "'Well, you look grave. Doesn't she, Frida?' "'I don't feel grave, that's all I can say. You're going quite on the wrong tack.' "'No, she does not feel grave.' echoed Mrs. Munt. "'I can bear witness to that. She disagrees.' "'Hark!' interrupted Fräulein Mosebach. "'I hear Bruno entering the hall.' For Herr Liesick was due at Wickham Place to call for the two younger girls. He was not entering the hall. In fact, he did not enter it for quite five minutes. But Frida detected a delicate situation, and said that she and Helen had much better wait for Bruno down below, and leave Margaret and Mrs. Munt to finish arranging the flowers. Helen acquiesced. But, as if to prove that the situation was not delicate really, she stopped in the doorway and said, "'Did you say the Matheson's flat, Aunt Judy? How wonderful you are! I never knew that the woman who laced too tightly's name was Matheson.' "'Come, Helen,' said her cousin. "'Go, Helen,' said her aunt, and continued to Margaret almost in the same breath. "'Helen cannot deceive me. She does mind.' "'Oh, hush!' breathed Margaret. "'Frida'll hear you, and she can be so tiresome.' "'She minds,' persisted Mrs. Munt, moving thoughtfully about the room and pulling the dead chrysanthemums out of the vases. "'I knew she'd mind, and I'm sure a girl ought to—' Such an experience! Such awful, coarse-grained people! I know more about them than you do, which you forget, and if Charles had taken you that motor-drive, well, you'd have reached the house a perfect wreck. Oh, Margaret, you don't know what you were in for. They're all bottled up against the drawing-room window. There's Mrs. Wilcox. I've seen her. There's Paul. There's Evie, who was a minx. There's Charles. I saw him to start with. And who would an elderly man with a moustache and a copper-coloured face be? Mr. Wilcox, possibly. I knew it. And there's Mr. Wilcox. It's a shame to call his face copper-colour, complained Margaret. He has a remarkably good complexion for a man of his age. Mrs. Munt, triumphant elsewhere, could afford to concede Mr. Wilcox his complexion. She passed on from it to the plan of campaign that her nieces should pursue in the future. Margaret tried to stop her. "'Helen did not take the news quite as I expected, but the Wilcox nerve is dead in her, really, so there's no need for plans. It's as well to be prepared. No, it's as well not to be prepared. "'Because—' Her thoughts drew being from the obscure borderland. She could not explain in so many words, but she felt that those who prepare for all the emergencies of life beforehand may equip themselves at the expense of joy. It is necessary to prepare for an examination, or a dinner-party, or a possible fall in the price of stock. Those who attempt human relations must adopt another method, or fail. Because I'd sooner risk it was her lame conclusion. "'But imagine the evenings!' exclaimed her aunt, pointing to the mansions with the spout of the watering-can. "'Turn the electric light on here or there, and it's almost the same room. One evening they may forget to draw their blinds down, and you'll see them, 
and the next you yours, and they'll see you. Impossible to sit out on the balconies, impossible to water the plants or even speak. Imagine going out of the front door and they come out opposite at the same moment. And yet you tell me that plans are unnecessary, and you'd rather risk it. I hope to risk things all my life. Oh, Margaret, most dangerous. But after all, she continued with a smile, there's never any great risk as long as you have money. Oh, shame! What a shocking speech! Money pads the edges of things, said Miss Schlegel. God help those who have none. But this is something quite new, said Mrs. Munt, who collected new ideas as a squirrel collects nuts, and was especially attracted by those that are portable. New for me. Sensible people have acknowledged it for years. You and I and the Wilcoxes stand upon money as upon islands. It is so firm beneath our feet that we forget its very existence. It's only when we see someone near us tottering that we realize all that an independent income means. Last night, when we were talking up here round the fire, I began to think that the very soul of the world is economic, and that the lowest abyss is not the absence of love, but the absence of coin. I call that rather cynical. So do I. But Helen and I, we ought to remember, when we are tempted to criticise others, that we are standing on those islands, and that most of the others are down below the surface of the sea. The poor cannot always reach those whom they want to love, and they can hardly ever escape from those whom they love no longer. We rich can. Imagine the tragedy last June if Helen and Paul Wilcox had been poor people, and couldn't invoke railways and motor-cars to part them. "'That's more like socialism,' said Mrs. Munt suspiciously. "'Call it what you like. I call it going through life with one's hand spread open on the table. I'm tired of these rich people who pretend to be poor, and think it shows a nice mind to ignore the piles of money that keep their feet above the waves. I stand each year upon six hundred pounds, and Helen upon the same, and Tibby will stand upon eight and as fast as our pounds crumble away into the sea they are renewed. From the sea, yes, from the sea. And all our thoughts are the thoughts of six hundred pounders, and all our speeches. And because we don't want to steal umbrellas ourselves, we forget that below the sea people do want to steal them, and do steal them sometimes, and that what's a joke up here is down there reality." There they go. There goes Fräulein Mosebach. Really, for a German, she does dress charmingly. Oh! What is it? Helen was looking up at the Wilcox's flat. Why shouldn't she? I beg your pardon, I interrupted you. What was it you were saying about reality? I had worked it round to myself, as usual answered Margaret, in tones that were suddenly preoccupied. "'Do tell me this, at all events. Are you for the rich, or for the poor?' "'Too difficult. Ask me another. Am I for poverty, or for riches?' "'For riches. 
Hurrah for riches! For riches! echoed Mrs. Munt, having, as it were, at last secured her nut. Yes, for riches, money for ever! So am I, and so I am afraid are most of my acquaintances at Swanage. But I am surprised that you agree with us. Thank you so much, Aunt Julie. While I have talked theories, you have done the flowers. Not at all, dear. I wish you would let me help you in more important things. Well, would you be very kind? Would you come round with me to the registry office? There's a housemaid who won't say yes, but doesn't say no. On their way thither, they too looked up at the Wilcox's flat. Evie was in the balcony, staring most rudely, according to Mrs. Munt. Oh, yes, it was a nuisance, there was no doubt of it. Helen was proof against a passing encounter, but Margaret began to lose confidence. Might it reawake the dying nerve if the family were living close against her eyes? And Frieda Mosebach was stopping with them for another fortnight, and Frieda was sharp, abominably sharp, and quite capable of remarking, "'You love one of the young gentlemen opposite, yes?' The remark would be untrue, but of the kind which, if stated often enough, may become true, just as the remark, "'England and Germany are bound to fight,' renders war a little more likely each time that it is made, and is therefore made the more readily by the gutter-press of either nation. Have the private emotions also their gutter-press? Margaret thought so, and feared that good Aunt Julie and Frieda were typical specimens of it. They might, by continual chatter, lead Helen into a repetition of the desires of June. Into a repetition, they could not do more, they could not lead her into lasting love. They were, she saw it clearly, journalism. Her father, with all his defects and wrong-headedness, had been literature, and had he lived, he would have persuaded his daughter rightly. The registry office was holding its morning reception. A string of carriages filled the street. Miss Schlegel waited her turn, and finally had to be content with an insidious temporary, being rejected by genuine housemaids on the ground of her numerous stairs. Her failure depressed her, and though she forgot the failure, the depression remained. On her way home she again glanced up at the Wilcox's flat, and took the rather matronly step of speaking about the matter to Helen. "'Helen, you must tell me whether this thing worries you.' "'If what?' said Helen, who was washing her hands for lunch. "'The W's coming.' "'No, of course not.' "'Really?' Really. Then she admitted that she was a little worried on Mrs. Wilcox's account. She implied that Mrs. Wilcox might reach backward into deep feelings, and be pained by things that never touched the other members of that clan. "'I shan't mind if Paul points at our house and says, "'There lives the girl who tried to catch me.' "'But she might.' "'If even that worries you, we could arrange something.' There's no reason we should be near people who displease us, or whom we displease, thanks to our money. We might even go away for a little. Well, I am going away. Frieda's just asked me to Stettin, and I shan't be back till after the new year. Will that do? Or must I fly the country altogether? Really, Meg, what has come over you to make such a fuss? Oh, I'm getting an old maid, I suppose. I thought I minded nothing, but 
Really, I—I I should be bored if you fell in love with the same man twice, and—she cleared her throat. You did go red, you know, when Aunt Julie attacked you this morning. I shouldn't have referred to it otherwise. But Helen's laugh rang true, as she raised a soapy hand to heaven, and swore that never, nowhere, and no how, would she again fall in love with any of the Wilcox family, down to its remotest collaterals. End of chapter 7、Chapter 8 of Howard's End This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett Howard's End by E. M. Forster. Chapter 8. The friendship between Margaret and Mrs. Wilcox, which was to develop so quickly and with such strange results, may perhaps have had its beginnings at Speer in the spring. Perhaps the elder lady, as she gazed at the vulgar, ruddy cathedral, and listened to the talk of Helen and her husband, may have detected in the other and less charming of the sisters a deeper sympathy, a sounder judgment. She was capable of detecting such things. Perhaps it was she who had desired the Miss Schlegels to be invited to Howard's End, and Margaret whose presence she had particularly desired. All this is speculation. Mrs. Wilcox has left few clear indications behind her. It is certain that she came to call at Wickham Place a fortnight later, the very day that Helen was going with her cousin to Stetten. Helen! Cried Fräulein Mosebach in awestruck tones. She was now in her cousin's confidence. His mother has forgiven you. And then, remembering that in England the newcomer ought not to call before she is called upon, she changed her tone from awe to disapproval, and opined that Mrs. Wilcox was keine Dame. Oh, bother the whole family! snapped Margaret. Helen, stop giggling and pirouetting and go and finish your packing. Why can't the woman leave us alone? I don't know what I shall do with Meg, Helen retorted, collapsing upon the stairs. She's got Wilcox and Box upon the brain. Meg, Meg, I don't love the young gentleman. I don't love the young gentleman, Meg, Meg. Can a body speak plainer? Most certainly her love has died. Asserted Fräulein Mosebach. Most certainly it has, Frieda, but that will not prevent me from being bored with the Wilcoxes if I return the call. Then Helen simulated tears, and Fräulein Mosebach, who thought her extremely amusing, did the same. Oh, boo hoo! Boo hoo hoo! Meg's going to return the call, and I can't. Cause why? Cause I'm going to German eye. If you are going to Germany, go and pack. If you aren't, go and call on the Wilcoxes instead of me. But, Meg, Meg, I don't love the young gentleman. I don't love the young. Oh, Lud! Who's that coming down the stairs? I vow tis my brother. Oh, criminy! A male, even such a male as Tibby, was enough to stop the foolery. The barrier of sex, though decreasing among the civilized, is still high, 
and higher on the side of women. Helen could tell her sister all, and her cousin much about Paul. She told her brother nothing. It was not prudishness, for she now spoke of the Wilcox ideal, with laughter, and even with a growing brutality. Nor was it precaution, for Tibby seldom repeated any news that did not concern himself. It was rather the feeling that she betrayed a secret into the camp of men, and that, however trivial it was on this side of the barrier, it would become important on that. So she stopped, or rather began to fool on other subjects, until her long-suffering relatives drove her upstairs. Fräulein Mosebach followed her, but lingered to say heavily over the banisters to Margaret, "'It is all right. She does not love the young man. He has not been worthy of her.' "'Yes, I know. Thanks very much.' I thought I did right to tell you. Ever so many thanks. What's that? asked Tibby. No one told him, and he proceeded into the dining room to eat Elvis plums. That evening Margaret took decisive action. The house was very quiet, and the fog—we are in November now—pressed against the windows like an excluded ghost. Frida and Helen and all their luggage had gone. Tibby— who was not feeling well, lay stretched on a sofa by the fire. Margaret sat by him, thinking. Her mind darted from impulse to impulse, and finally marshalled them all in review. The practical person, who knows what he wants at once, and generally knows nothing else, will excuse her of indecision. But this was the way her mind worked. And when she did act, no one could accuse her of indecision then. She hit out as lustily as if she had not considered the matter at all. The letter that she wrote Mrs. Wilcox glowed with the native hue of resolution. The pale cast of thought was with her a breath rather than a tarnish, a breath that leaves the colours all the more vivid when it has been wiped away. Dear Mrs. Wilcox, I have to write something discourteous. It would be better if we did not meet— both my sister and my aunt have given displeasure to your family, and in my sister's case the grounds for displeasure might recur. As far as I know, she no longer occupies her thoughts with your son. But it would not be fair, either to her or to you, if they met, and it is therefore right that our acquaintance, which began so pleasantly, should end. I fear that you will not agree with this— Indeed, I know that you will not, since you have been good enough to call on us. It is only an instinct on my part, and no doubt the instinct is wrong. My sister would undoubtedly say that it is wrong. I write without her knowledge, and I hope that you will not associate her with my discourtesy. Believe me, yours truly, M. J. Schlegel. Margaret sent this letter round by post. Next morning she received the following reply by hand. Dear Miss Schlegel, you should not have written me such a letter. I call to tell you that Paul has gone abroad. Ruth Wilcox. Margaret's cheeks burnt. She could not finish her breakfast. She was on fire with shame. Helen had told her that the youth was leaving England, but other things had seemed more important and she had forgotten. All her absurd anxieties fell to the ground, and in their place arose the certainty that she had been rude to Mrs. Wilcox. Rudeness affected Margaret like a bitter taste in the mouth. It poisoned life. At times it is necessary, 
but woe to those who employ it without due need. She flung on a hat and shawl, just like a poor woman, and plunged into the fog which still continued. Her lips were compressed, the letter remained in her hand, and in this state she crossed the street, entered the marble vestibule of the flats, eluded the concierges, and ran up the stairs till she reached the second floor. She sent in her name, and to her surprise was shown straight into Mrs. Wilcox's bedroom. "'Oh, Mrs. Wilcox, I have made the baddest blunder. I am more, more ashamed and sorry than I can say.' Mrs. Wilcox bowed gravely. She was offended, and did not pretend to the contrary. She was sitting up in bed, writing letters on an invalid table that spanned her knees. A breakfast tray was on another table beside her. The light of the fire, the light from the window, and the light of a candle-lamp which threw a quivering halo round her hands, combined to create a strange atmosphere of dissolution. "'I knew he was going to India in November, but I forgot.' He sailed on the seventeenth for Nigeria, in Africa. I knew, I know. I have been too absurd all through. I am very much ashamed. Mrs. Wilcox did not answer. I am more sorry than I can say, and I hope that you will forgive me. It doesn't matter, Miss Schlegel. It is good of you to have come round so promptly. "'It does matter,' cried Margaret. "'I have been rude to you, and my sister is not even at home, so there was not even that excuse.' "'Indeed?' "'She has just gone to Germany. Is she gone as well?' murmured the other. "'Yes, certainly it is quite safe. Safe absolutely now.' "'You've been worrying, too!' exclaimed Margaret, getting more and more excited, and taking a chair without invitation. "'How perfectly extraordinary! I can see that you have. You felt as I do. Helen mustn't meet him again.' "'I did think it best.' "'Now why?' "'That's a most difficult question,' said Mrs. Wilcox, smiling, and a little losing her expression of annoyance. I think you put it best in your letter. It was an instinct, which may be wrong. It wasn't that your son still—oh, no! He often—my <laughs> Paul is very young, you see. Then what was it? She repeated, An instinct, which may be wrong. In other words, they belong to types that can fall in love, but couldn't live together. That's dreadfully probable. I'm afraid that in nine cases out of ten, nature pulls one way, and human nature another. These are indeed other words, said Mrs. Wilcox. I had nothing so coherent in my head. I was merely alarmed when I knew that my boy cared for your sister. Ah, I have always been wanting to ask you. How did you know? Helen was so surprised when her aunt drove up, and you stepped forward and arranged things. Did Paul tell you? There is nothing to be gained by discussing that," said Mrs. Wilcox, after a moment's pause. Mrs. Wilcox, were you very angry with us last June? I wrote you a letter, and you didn't answer it. I was certainly against taking Mrs. Matheson's flat. 
I knew it was opposite your house. But it's all right now? I think so. You only think? You aren't sure? I do love these little muddles tidied up. Oh, yes, I'm sure, said Mrs. Wilcox, moving with uneasiness beneath the clothes. I always sound uncertain over things. It is my way of speaking. That's all right. And I'm sure, too. Here the maid came in to remove the breakfast tray. They were interrupted, and when they resumed conversation, it was on more normal lines. I must say good-bye now. You will be getting up. No, please, stop a little longer. I am taking a day in bed. Now and then I do. I thought of you as one of the early risers. At Howard's end, yes. There is nothing to get up for in London. Nothing to get up for? cried the scandalized Margaret. When there are all the autumn exhibitions, and you say playing in the afternoon. Not to mention people. The truth is, I am a little tired. First came the wedding, and then Paul went off, and, instead of resting yesterday, I paid round of calls. A wedding? Yes, Charles, my eldest son, is married. Indeed! We took the flat chiefly on that account, and also that Paul could get his African outfit. The flat belongs to a cousin of my husband's, and she most kindly offered it to us. So before the day came we were able to make the acquaintance of Dolly's people, which we had not yet done. Margaret asked who Dolly's people were. Fussel. The father is in the Indian army, retired. The brother is in the army. The mother is dead. So perhaps these were the chinless, sunburnt men whom Helen had espied one afternoon through the window. Margaret felt mildly interested in the fortunes of the Wilcox family. She had acquired the habit on Helen's account, and it still clung to her. She asked for more information about Miss Dolly Fussell that was, and was given it in even, unemotional tones. Mrs. Wilcox's voice, though sweet and compelling, had little range of expression. It suggested that pictures, concerts, and people are all of small and equal value. Only once had it quickened, when speaking of Howard's end. Charles and Albert Fussell have known one another some time. They belong to the same club, and are both devoted to golf. Dolly plays golf, too, though I believe not so well, and they first met in a mixed foursome. We all like her, and are very much pleased. They were married on the eleventh, a few days before Paul sailed. Charles was very anxious to have his brother as best man, so he made a great point of having it on the eleventh. The Fussells would have preferred it after Christmas, but they were very nice about it. There is Dolly's photograph, in that double frame. Are you quite certain that I am not interrupting Mrs. Wilcox? Yes, quite. Then I will stay. I am enjoying this. Dolly's photograph was now examined. It was signed, For Dear Mims, which Mrs. Wilcox interpreted as the name she and Charles had settled that she should call me. Dolly looked silly, and had one of those triangular faces that so often prove attractive to a robust man. She was very pretty. 
From her Margaret passed to Charles, whose features prevailed opposite. She speculated on the forces that had drawn the two together till God parted them. She found time to hope that they would be happy. They have gone to Naples for their honeymoon. Lucky people! I can hardly imagine Charles in Italy. Doesn't he care for travelling? He likes travel, but he does see through foreigners so. What he most enjoys is a motor tour in England, and I think that would have carried the day if the weather had not been so abominable. His father gave him a car of his own for a wedding present, which for the present is being stored at Howard's End. I suppose you have a garage there? Yes. My husband built a little one only last month to the west of the house, not far from the witch-elm, in what used to be the paddock for the pony. The last words had an indescribable ring about them. "'Where's the pony gone?' asked Margaret, after a pause. "'The pony? No. Dead. Ever so long ago.' "'The witch-elm, I remember.' Helen spoke of it as a very splendid tree. It is the finest witch-elm in Hertfordshire. Did your sister tell you about the teeth? No! Oh, it might interest you. There are pig's teeth stuck into the trunk, about four feet from the ground. The country people put them in long ago, and they think that if they chew a piece of the bark, it will cure the toothache. The teeth are almost grown ever now, and no one comes to the tree. I should. I love folklore and all festering superstitions. Do you think that the tree really did cure toothache, if one believed in it? Of course it did. It would cure anything once. Certainly I remember cases. You see, I lived at Howard's End long— long before Mr. Wilcox knew it. I was born there." The conversation again shifted. At the time it seemed little more than aimless chatter. She was interested when her hostess explained that Howard's End was her own property. She was bored when too minute an account was given of the Fussell family, of the anxieties of Charles concerning Naples, of the movements of Mr. Wilcox and Evie who were motoring in Yorkshire. Margaret could not bear being bored. She grew inattentive, played with the photograph frame, dropped it, smashed Dolly's glass, apologized, was pardoned, cut her finger thereon, was pitied, and finally said she must be going. There was all the housekeeping to do, and she had to interview Tibby's riding-master. Then the curious note was struck again. "'Good-bye, Miss Schlegel. Good-bye. Thank you for coming. You have cheered me up. I'm so glad. I—I I wonder whether you ever think about yourself." "'I think of nothing else,' said Margaret, blushing, but letting her hand remain in that of the invalid. "'I wonder—I wondered at Heidelberg. I'm sure. I almost think—'Yes?' asked Margaret, for there was a long pause a pause that was somehow akin to the flicker of the fire, the quiver of the reading-lamp upon their hands, the white blur from the window, a pause of shifting and eternal shadows. "'I almost think you forget you're a girl.' 
Margaret was startled, and a little annoyed. "'I'm twenty-nine, she remarked. "'That's not so wildly girlish.' Mrs. Wilcox smiled. "'What makes you say that? Do you mean that I have been gauche and rude?' A shake of the head. "'I only meant that I am fifty-one, and that to me, both of you—' "'Read it all in some book or other. I cannot put things clearly.' "'No, I've got it. Inexperience. I'm no better than Helen, you mean, and yet I presume to advise her.' "'Yes, you have got it. Inexperience is the word.' "'Inexperience.' repeated Margaret, in serious yet buoyant tones. "'Of course I have everything to learn, absolutely everything, just as much as Helen. Life's very difficult and full of surprises. At all events I've got as far as that. To be humble and kind, to go straight ahead, to love people rather than pity them, to remember the submerged—well, one can't do all these things at once— worse luck, because they're so contradictory. It's then that proportion comes in—to live by proportion. Don't begin with proportion—only prigs do that. Let proportion come in as a last resource, when the better things have failed, and a deadlock—oh, gracious me, I've started preaching! Indeed, you put the difficulties of life splendidly said Mrs. Wilcox, withdrawing her hand into the deeper shadows. It is just what I should have liked to say about them myself. End of chapter 8 Chapter 9 of Howard's End This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information— or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Howard's End by E. M. Forster. Chapter 9. Mrs. Wilcox cannot be accused of giving Margaret much information about life, and Margaret, on the other hand, has made a fair show of modesty, and has pretended to an inexperience that she certainly did not feel. She had kept house for over ten years. She had entertained almost with distinction. She had brought up a charming sister, and was bringing up a brother. Surely, if experience is attainable, she had attained it. Yet the little luncheon-party that she gave in Mrs. Wilcox's honour was not a success. The new friend did not blend with the one or two delightful people who had been asked to meet her, and the atmosphere was one of polite bewilderment. Her tastes were simple— her knowledge of culture slight, and she was not interested in the new English art club, nor in the dividing line between journalism and literature, which was started as a conversational hare. The delightful people darted after it with cries of joy, Margaret leading them, and not till the meal was half over did they realize that the principal guest had taken no part in the chase. There was no common topic— Mrs. Wilcox, whose life had been spent in the service of husband and sons, had little to say to strangers who had never shared it, and whose age was half her own. Clever talk alarmed her, and withered her delicate imaginings. It was the social counterpart of a motor-car, all jerks, 
and she was a wisp of hay, a flower. Twice she deplored the weather, twice criticized the train service on the Great Northern Railway. They vigorously assented, and rushed on. And when she inquired whether there was any news of Helen, her hostess was too much occupied in placing Rothenstein to answer. The question was repeated. "'I hope that your sister is safe in Germany by now.' Margaret checked herself and said, "'Yes, thank you. I heard on Tuesday.' But the demon of vociferation was in her, and the next moment she was off again. "'Only on Tuesday, for they live right away at Stetten. Did you ever know any one living at Stetten?' "'Never,' said Mrs. Wilcox gravely while her neighbour, a young man low down in the education office, began to discuss what people who lived at Stetten ought to look like. Was there such a thing as Stettininity? Margaret swept on. People at Stetten drop things into boats out of overhanging warehouses. At least, our cousins do, but aren't particularly rich. The town isn't interesting, except for a clock that rolls its eyes, and the view of the odour, which truly is something special. Oh, Mrs. Wilcox, you would love the odour. The river, or rather rivers, there seem to be dozens of them, are intense blue, and the plain they run through an intensest green. Indeed, that sounds a most beautiful view, Miss Schlegel. So I say, but Helen, who will muddle things, says no, it's like music. The course of the odour is to be like music. It's obliged to remind her of a symphonic poem. The part by the landing stage is in B minor, if I remember rightly, but lower down things get extremely mixed. There is a slodgy theme in several keys at once, meaning mud-banks, and another for the navigable canal, and the exit into the Baltic is in C-sharp major, pianissimo. "'What do the overhanging warehouses make of that?' asked the man, laughing. "'They make a great deal of it,' replied Margaret, unexpectedly rushing off on a new tack. "'I think it's affectation to compare the odour to music, and so do you. But the overhanging warehouses of Stetten take beauty seriously, which we don't, and the average Englishman doesn't, and despises all who do.' Now don't say Germans have no taste, or I shall scream. They haven't. But—but—such a tremendous but—they take poetry seriously. They do take poetry seriously. Is anything gained by that? Yes, yes, the German is always on the lookout for beauty. He may miss it through stupidity, or misinterpret it. But he is always asking beauty to enter his life, and I believe that in the end it will come. At Heidelberg I met a fat veterinary surgeon, whose voice broke with sobs as he repeated some mawkish poetry. So easy for me to laugh, I who never repeat poetry good or bad, and cannot remember one fragment of verse to thrill myself with. My blood boils. Well, I'm half German, so put it down to patriotism, when I listen to the tasteful contempt of the average islander for things Teutonic, whether they're Bocklin or my veterinary surgeon. Oh, Bocklin, they say, he strains after beauty, he peoples nature with gods too consciously. Of course Bocklin strains, because he wants something, 
beauty and all the other intangible gifts that are floating about the world. So his landscapes don't come off, and ladies do. I'm not sure that I agree. Do you? said he, turning to Mrs. Wilcox. She replied, I think Miss Schlegel puts everything splendidly. And a chill fell on the conversation. Oh, Mrs. Wilcox, say something nicer than that. It's such a snub to be told you put things splendidly. I do not mean it as a snub. Your last speech interested me so much. Generally, people do not seem quite to like Germany. I have long wanted to hear what is said on the other side. The other side? Then you do disagree. Oh, good! Give us your side. I have no side. But my husband— Her voice softened, the chill increased. Has very little faith in the continent, and our children have all taken after him. On what grounds? Do they feel that the continent is in bad form? Mrs. Wilcox had no idea. She paid little attention to grounds. She was not intellectual, nor even alert, and it was odd that, all the same, she should give the idea of greatness. Margaret, zigzagging with her friends over thought and art, was conscious of a personality that transcended their own, and dwarfed their activities. There was no bitterness in Mrs. Wilcox. There was not even criticism. She was lovable, and no ungracious or uncharitable word had passed her lips. Yet she and daily life were out of focus. One or the other must show blurred. And at lunch she seemed more out of focus than usual, and nearer the line that divides life from a life that may be of greater importance. You will admit, though, that the continent—it seems silly to speak of the continent— but really it is all more like itself than any part of it is like England. England is unique. Do have another jelly first. I was going to say that the continent, for good or for evil, is interested in ideas. Its literature and art have what one might call the kink of the unseen about them, and this persists even through decadence and affectation. There is more liberty of action in England. But for liberty of thought, go to bureaucratic Prussia. People will there discuss with humility vital questions that we here think ourselves too good to touch with tongs. I do not want to go to Prussian, said Mrs. Wilcox, not even to see that interesting view that you are describing. And for discussing with humility, I am too old. We never discuss anything at Howard's End. "'Then you ought to,' said Margaret. "'Discussion keeps the house alive. It cannot stand by bricks and mortar alone.' "'It cannot stand without them,' said Mrs. Wilcox, unexpectedly catching on to the thought, and rousing for the first and last time a faint hope in the breasts of the delightful people. "'It cannot stand without them, and I sometimes think—' But I cannot expect your generation to agree, for even my daughter disagrees with me here. Never mind us or her. Do say. I sometimes think that it is wiser to leave action and discussion to men. There was a little silence. 
One admits that the arguments against the suffrage are extraordinarily strong," said a girl opposite, leaning forward and crumbling her bread. "'Are they? I never follow any arguments. I am only too thankful not to have a vote myself." "'We didn't mean the vote, though, did we?' supplied Margaret. "'Aren't we differing on something much wider, Mrs. Wilcox? Whether women are to remain what they have been since the dawn of history, or whether since men have moved forward so far, they too may move forward a little now. I say they may. I would even admit a biological change." "'I don't know. I don't know. I must be getting back to my overhanging warehouse,' said the man. They've turned disgracefully strict." Mrs. Wilcox also rose. "'Oh, but come upstairs for a little. Miss Quested plays. Do you like McDowell? Do you mind him only having two noises? If you really must go, I'll see you out. Won't you even have coffee?" They left the dining-room, closing the door behind them, and as Mrs. Wilcox buttoned up her jacket, she said, "'What an interesting life you all lead in London!' "'No, we don't,' said Margaret, with a sudden revulsion. "'We lead the lives of gibbering monkeys. Mrs. Wilcox, really, we have something quiet and stable at the bottom. We really have. All my friends have. Don't pretend you enjoyed lunch, for you loathed it. But forgive me by coming again, alone, or by asking me to you." I am used to young people. And with each word she spoke, the outlines of known things grew dim. I hear a great deal of chatter at home, for we, like you, entertain a great deal. With us it is more sport and politics, but— I enjoyed my lunch very much, Miss Schlegel, dear, and am not pretending, and only wish I could have joined in more. For one thing, I'm not particularly well just to-day. For another, you younger people move so quickly that it dazes me. Charles is the same, Dolly the same. But we are all in the same boat, old and young. I never forget that." They were silent for a moment. Then, with a newborn emotion, they shook hands. The conversation ceased suddenly when Margaret re-entered the dining-room. Her friends had been talking over her new friend, and had dismissed her as uninteresting. End of chapter 9 Chapter 10 of Howard's End This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett Howard's End by E. M. Forster. Chapter 10 Several days passed. Was Mrs. Wilcox one of the unsatisfactory people—there are many of them—who dangle intimacy and then withdraw it? They evoke our interests and affections, and keep the life of the spirit dawdling round them. Then they withdraw. When physical passion is involved, there is a definite name for such behavior—flirting and if carried far enough, it is punishable by law. But no law, 
not public opinion even, punishes those who coquette with friendship, though the dull ache that they inflict, the sense of misdirected effort and exhaustion, may be as intolerable. Was she one of these? Margaret feared so at first, for, with a Londoner's impatience, she wanted everything to be settled up immediately. She mistrusted the periods of quiet that are essential to true growth. Desiring to book Mrs. Wilcox as a friend, she pressed on the ceremony, pencil as it were in hand, pressing the more because the rest of the family were away, and the opportunity seemed favourable. But the elder woman would not be hurried. She refused to fit in with the Wickham Place set, or to reopen discussion of Helen and Paul, whom Margaret would have utilised as a shortcut. She took her time, or perhaps let time take her, and when the crisis did come, all was ready. The crisis opened with a message. Would Miss Schlegel come shopping? Christmas was nearing, and Mrs. Wilcox felt behind-hand with the presents. She had taken some more days in bed, and must make up for lost time. Margaret accepted, and at eleven o'clock one cheerless morning, they started out in a brougham. First of all, began Margaret, we must make a list and tick off the people's names. My aunt always does, and this fog may thicken up at any moment. Have you any ideas? I thought we would go to Harrods or the Haymarket stores, said Mrs. Wilcox rather hopelessly. Everything is sure to be there. I am not a good shopper. The din is so confusing, and your aunt is quite right. One ought to make a list. Take my notebook, then, and write your own name at the top of the page. Oh, hooray! said Margaret, writing it. How very kind of you to start with me! But she did not want to receive anything expensive. Their acquaintance was singular rather than intimate, and she divined that the Wilcox clan would resent any expenditure on outsiders. The more compact families do. She did not want to be thought a second Helen, who would snatch presents since she could not snatch young men, nor to be exposed like a second Aunt Julie to the insults of Charles. A certain austerity of demeanour was best, and she added, "'I don't really want a Yuletide gift, though. In fact, I'd rather not.' "'Why?' "'Because I've odd ideas about Christmas. Because I have all that money can buy. I want more people, but no more things. I should like to give you something worth your acquaintance, Miss Schlegel, in memory of your kindness to me during my lonely fortnight. It has so happened that I have been left alone, and you have stopped me from brooding. I am too apt to brood." "'If that is so,' said Margaret, "'if I have happened to be of use to you, which I didn't know, you cannot pay me back with anything tangible." "'I suppose not, but one would like to. Perhaps I shall think of something as we go about.' Her name remained at the head of the list, but nothing was written opposite it. They drove from shop to shop. The air was white, and when they alighted it tasted like cold pennies. At times they passed through a clot of grey. Mrs. Wilcox's vitality was low that morning and it was Margaret who decided on a horse for this little girl, a gollywog for that, for the rector's wife a copper warming-tray. "'We always give the servants money.' "'Yes, do you, yes, much easier,' replied Margaret, but felt the grotesque impact of the unseen upon the scene. 
and saw issuing from a forgotten manger at Bethlehem this torrent of coins and toys. Vulgarity reigned. Public houses, besides their usual exhortation against temperance reform, invited men to join our Christmas goose club, one bottle of gin, etc., or two according to subscription. A poster of a woman in tights heralded the Christmas pantomime, and little red devils, who had come in again that year, were prevalent upon the Christmas cards. Margaret was no morbid idealist. She did not wish this spate of business and self-advertisement checked. It was only the occasion of it that struck her with amazement annually. How many of these vacillating shoppers and tired shop assistants realized that it was a divine event that drew them together? She realized it, though standing outside in the matter. She was not a Christian in the accepted sense. She did not believe that God had ever worked among us as a young artisan. These people, or most of them, believed it, and if pressed would affirm it in words. But the visible signs of their belief were Regent Street, or Drury Lane, a little mud displaced, a little money spent, a little food cooked, eaten, and forgotten. Inadequate. But in public who shall express the unseen adequately? It is private life that holds out the mirror to infinity, personal intercourse, and that alone, that ever hints at a personality beyond our daily vision. "'No, I do like Christmas on the whole,' she announced. "'In its clumsy way it does approach peace and goodwill. But, oh, it is clumsier every year.' "'Is it? I am only used to country Christmases.' "'We are usually in London, and play the game with vigour. Carols at the Abbey, clumsy midday meal, clumsy dinner for the maids, followed by Christmas-tree and dancing of poor children, with songs from Helen. The drawing-room does very well for that. We put the tree in the powder-closet, and draw a curtain when the candles are lighted, and with a looking-glass behind it looks quite pretty. I wish we might have a powder-closet in our next house. Of course the tree has to be very small, and the presents don't hang on it. No, the presents reside in a sort of rocky landscape made of crumpled brown paper. You spoke of your next house, Miss Schlegel. Then are you leaving Wickham Place? Yes, in two or three years, when the lease expires. We must. Have you been there long? All our lives. You will be very sorry to leave it. I suppose so. We scarcely realise it yet. My father— she broke off, for they had reached the stationary department of the Haymarket stores, and Mrs. Wilcox wanted to order some private greeting-cards. "'If possible, something distinctive,' she sighed. At the counter she found a friend, bent on the same errand, and conversed with her insipidly, wasting much time. "'My husband and our daughter are motoring. Bertha, too! Oh, fancy, what a coincidence!' Margaret, though not practical, could shine in such company as this. While they talked, she went through a volume of specimen cards, and submitted one for Mrs. Wilcox's inspection. Mrs. Wilcox was delighted. So original, words so sweet, she would order a hundred like that, and could never be sufficiently grateful. Then, just as the assistant was booking the order, she said, "'Do you know, I'll wait. On second thoughts, I'll wait.' 
There's plenty of time still, isn't there? And I shall be able to get Evie's opinion." They returned to the carriage by devious paths. When they were in, she said, "'But couldn't you get it renewed?' "'I beg your pardon?' asked Margaret. "'The lease, I mean.' "'Oh, the lease! Have you been thinking of that all the time? How very kind of you! Surely something could be done.' "'No. Values have risen too enormously. They mean to pull down Wickham Place and build flats like yours.' "'But how horrible!' "'Landlords are horrible.' Then she said vehemently, "'It is monstrous, Miss Schlegel. It isn't right. I had no idea that this was hanging over you. I do pity you from the bottom of my heart. To be parted from your house, your father's house, it oughtn't to be allowed. It is worse than dying. I would rather die than—oh, poor girls!' Can what they call civilization be right if people mayn't die in the room where they were born? My dear, I am so sorry." Margaret did not know what to say. Mrs. Wilcox had been overtired by shopping, and was inclined to hysteria. Howard's End was nearly pulled down once. It would have killed me. Howard's End must be a very different house to ours. We are fond of ours, but there is nothing distinctive about it. As you saw, it is an ordinary London house. We shall easily find another." "'So you think.' "'Again my lack of experience, I suppose,' said Margaret, easing away from the subject. "'I can't say anything when you take up that line, Mrs. Wilcox. I wish I could see myself as you see me, foreshortened into a backfish. Quite the ingenue. Very charming, wonderfully well-read for my age, but incapable." Mrs. Wilcox would not be deterred. "'Come down with me to Howard's End now,' she said, more vehemently than ever. "'I want you to see it. You have never seen it. I want to hear what you say about it, for you do put things so wonderfully.' Margaret glanced at the pitiless air, and then at the tired face of her companion. "'Later on I should love it,' she continued. "'But it's hardly the weather for such an expedition. And we ought to start when we're fresh. Isn't the house shut up, too?" She received no answer. Mrs. Wilcox appeared to be annoyed. "'Might I come some other day?' Mrs. Wilcox bent forward and tapped the glass. "'Back to Wickham Place, please,' was her order to the coachman. Margaret had been snubbed. "'A thousand thanks, Miss Schlegel, for all your help.' "'Not at all.' It is such a comfort to get the presents off my mind, the Christmas cards especially. I do admire your choice." It was her turn to receive no answer. In her turn Margaret became annoyed. "'My husband and Evie will be back the day after to-morrow. That is why I dragged you out shopping to-day. I stayed in town chiefly to shop, but got through nothing, and now he writes that they must cut their tour short. The weather is so bad and the police-traps have been so bad—nearly as bad as in Surrey. Ours are such a careful chauffeur, and my husband feels it particularly hard that they should be treated like road-hogs." "'Why?' "'Well, naturally, he—he he isn't a road-hog.' "'He was exceeding the speed-limit, I conclude. 
He must expect to suffer with the lower animals. Mrs. Wilcox was silenced. In growing discomfort they drove homewards. The city seemed satanic, the narrower streets oppressing like the galleries of a mine. No harm was done by the fog to trade, for it lay high, and the lighted windows of the shops were thronged with customers. It was rather a darkening of the spirit which fell back upon itself to find a more grievous darkness within. Margaret nearly spoke a dozen times, but something throttled her. She felt petty and awkward, and her meditations on Christmas grew more cynical. Peace? It may bring other gifts, but is there a single Londoner to whom Christmas is peaceful? The craving for excitement and for elaboration has ruined that blessing. Goodwill? Had she seen any example of it in the hordes of purchasers? Or in herself? She had failed to respond to this invitation merely because it was a little queer, and imaginative, she whose birthright it was to nourish imagination. Better to have accepted, to have tired themselves a little by the journey, than coldly to reply, "'Might I come some other day?' Her cynicism left her. There would be no other day. This shadowy woman would never ask her again. They parted at the mansions. Mrs. Wilcox went in after due civilities, and Margaret watched the tall, lonely figure sweep up the hall to the lift. As the glass doors closed on it, she had the sense of an imprisonment. The beautiful head disappeared first, still buried in the muff. The long, trailing skirt followed. A woman of undefinable rarity was going up heavenward, like a specimen in a bottle. And into what a heaven! A vault as of hell, sooty black, from which soots descended. At lunch her brother, seeing her inclined for silence, insisted on talking. Tibby was not ill-natured, but from babyhood something drove him to do the unwelcome and the unexpected. Now he gave her a long account of the day-school that he sometimes patronized. The account was interesting, and she had often pressed him for it before, but she could not attend now, for her mind was focused on the invisible. She discerned that Mrs. Wilcox, though a loving wife and mother, had only one passion in life—her house, and that the moment was solemn when she invited a friend to share this passion with her. To answer, another day, was to answer as a fool. Another day will do for brick and mortar, but not for the holy of holies into which Howard's end had been transfigured. Her own curiosity was slight. She had heard more than enough about it in the summer. The nine windows, the vine, and the witch-elm had no pleasant connections for her, and she would have preferred to spend the afternoon at a concert. But imagination triumphed. While her brother held forth, she determined to go, at whatever cost, and to compel Mrs. Wilcox to go, too. When lunch was over, she stepped over to the flats. Mrs. Wilcox had just gone away for the night. Margaret said that it was of no consequence, hurried downstairs, and took a hansom to King's Cross. She was convinced that the escapade was important, though it would have puzzled her to say why. There was a question of imprisonment and escape, and though she did not know the time of the train, she strained her eyes for the St. Pancras's clock. Then the clock of King's Cross swung into sight, a second moon in that infernal sky, and her cab drew up at the station. 
there was a train for Hilton in five minutes. She took a ticket, asking in her agitation for a single. As she did so, a grave and happy voice saluted her and thanked her. "'I will come, if I still may,' said Margaret, laughing nervously. "'You are coming to sleep, dear, too. It is in the morning that my house is most beautiful. You are coming to stop. I cannot show you my meadow properly except at sunrise. These fogs—' she pointed at the station roof. Never spread far. I dare say they are sitting in the sun in Hertfordshire, and you will never repent joining them. I shall never repent joining you. It is the same. They began the walk up the long platform. Far at its end stood the train, breasting the darkness without. They never reached it. Before imagination could triumph, there were cries of, "'Mother! Mother!' And a heavy-browed girl darted out of the cloak-room and seized Mrs. Wilcox by the arm. "'Evie!' she gasped. "'Evie, my pet!' The girl called, "'Father! I say, look who's here!' "'Evie, dearest girl, why aren't you in Yorkshire?' "'No, motor-smash! Change plans! Father's coming!' "'Why, Ruth!' cried Mr. Wilcox, joining them. "'What in the name of all that's wonderful are you doing here, Ruth?' Mrs. Wilcox had recovered herself. "'Oh, Henry, dear, here's a lovely surprise. Uh, but let me introduce—but I think you know Miss Schlegel.' "'Oh, yes,' he replied, not greatly interested. "'But how's yourself, Ruth?' "'Fit as a fiddle,' she answered gaily. "'So were we, and so was our car, which ran A1 as far as Ripon. But they're a wretched horse and cart which a fool of a driver. Miss Schlegel, our little outing must be for another day. I was saying that this fool of a driver, as the policeman himself admits. Another day, Mrs. Wilcox, of course. But as we've insured against third-party risks, it won't so much matter. Cart and car being practically at right angles. The voices of the happy family rose high. Margaret was left alone. No one wanted her. Mrs. Wilcox walked out of King's Cross between her husband and her daughter, listening to both of them. End of chapter 10 Chapter 11 of Howard's End This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett Howard's End by E. M. Forster Chapter 11 The funeral was over. The carriages rolled away through the soft mud, and only the poor remained. They approached to the newly dug shaft, and looked their last at the coffin, now almost hidden beneath the spadefuls of clay. It was their moment. Most of them were women from the dead woman's district, to whom black garments had been served out by Mr. Wilcox's orders. Pure curiosity had brought others. They thrilled with the excitement of a death, and of a rapid death, and stood in groups or moved between the graves like drops of ink. The son of one of them, a woodcutter, was perched high above their heads, pollarding one of the churchyard elms. From where he sat he could see the village of Hilton, strung upon the north road, with its accreting suburbs. 
the sunset beyond, scarlet and orange, winking at him beneath brows of grey, the church, the plantations, and behind him an unspoilt country of fields and farms. But he, too, was rolling the event luxuriously in his mouth. He tried to tell his mother down below all that he had felt when he saw the coffin approaching, how he could not leave his work, and yet did not like to go on with it, how he had almost slipped out of the tree he was so upset. The rooks had cawed, and no wonder, it was as if rooks knew too. His mother claimed the prophetic power herself. She had seen a strange look about Mrs. Wilcox for some time. London had done the mischief, said others. She had been a kind lady. Her grandmother had been kind, too. A plainer person, but very kind. Ah, the old sort was dying out. Mr. Wilcox, he was a kind gentleman. They advanced to the topic again and again, dully, but with exultation. The funeral of a rich person was to them what the funeral of Alcestis or Ophelia is to the educated. It was art. Though remote from life, it enhanced life's values, and they witnessed it avidly. The gravediggers, who had kept up an undercurrent of disapproval—they disliked Charles. It was not a moment to speak of such things, but they did not like Charles Wilcox. The gravediggers finished their work and piled up the wreaths and crosses above it. The sun set over Hilton. The grey brows of the evening flushed a little, and were cleft with one scarlet frown. Chattering sadly to each other, the mourners passed through the lich-gate and traversed the chestnut avenues that led down to the village. The young woodcutter stayed a little longer, poised above the silence and swaying rhythmically. At last the bough fell beneath his saw. With a grunt he descended, his thoughts dwelling no longer on death, but on love, for he was mating. He stopped as he passed the new grave. A sheaf of tawny chrysanthemums had caught his eye. They didn't ought to have coloured flowers at buryings, he reflected. Trudging on a few steps, he stopped again, looked furtively at the dusk, turned back, wrenched a chrysanthemum from the sheaf, and hid it in his pocket. After him came silence absolute. The cottage that abutted on the churchyard was empty, and no other house stood near. Hour after hour the scene of the interment remained without an eye to witness it. Clouds drifted over it from the west or the church may have been a ship, high-proud, steering with all its company towards infinity. Towards morning the air grew colder, the sky clearer, the surface of the earth hard and sparkling above the prostrate dead. The woodcutter, returning after a night of joy, reflected, "'They lilies, they croissants. It's a pity I didn't take them all.' Up at Howard's end they were attempting breakfast. Charles and Evie sat in the dining-room with Mrs. Charles. Their father, who could not bear to see a face, breakfasted upstairs. He suffered acutely. Pain came over him in spasms, as if it was physical, and even while he was about to eat, his eyes would fill with tears, and he would lay down the morsel untasted. He remembered his wife's even goodness during thirty years. Not anything in detail, not courtship or early raptures, but just the unvarying virtue that seemed to him a woman's noblest quality. So many women are capricious, breaking into odd flaws of passion or frivolity. Not so his wife. Year after year, summer and winter, as bride and mother, she had been the same. He had always trusted her. Her tenderness, 
her innocence, the wonderful innocence that was hers by the gift of God. Ruth knew no more of worldly wickedness and wisdom than did the flowers in her garden, or the grass in her field. Her idea of business— Henry, why do people who have enough money try to get more money? Her idea of politics— I am sure that if the mothers of various nations could meet, there would be no more wars. Her idea of religion—ah, this had been a cloud, but a cloud that passed. She came of Quaker stock, and he and his family, formerly dissenters, were now members of the Church of England. The rector's sermons had at first repelled her, and she had expressed a desire for a more inward light, adding, "'Not so much for myself as for baby.' Charles. Inward light must have been granted, for he heard no complaints in later years. They brought up their three children without dispute. They had never disputed. She lay under the earth now. She had gone, and as if to make her going the more bitter, had gone with a touch of mystery that was all unlike her. "'Why didn't you tell me you knew of it?' he had moaned, and her faint voice had answered. I didn't want to, Henry. I might have been wrong, and every one hates illnesses." He had been told of the horror by a strange doctor, whom she had consulted during his absence from town. Was this altogether just? Without fully explaining, she had died. It was a fault on her part, and—tears rushed into his eyes—what a little fault! It was the only time she had deceived him in those thirty years. He rose to his feet and looked out of the window, for Evie had come in with the letters, and he could meet no one's eye. Ah, yes, she had been a good woman. She had been steady. He chose the word deliberately. To him steadiness included all praise. He himself, gazing at the wintry garden, is in appearance a steady man. His face was not as square as his son's, and indeed the chin, though firm enough in outline, retreated a little, and the lips, ambiguous, were curtained by a moustache. But there was no external hint of weakness. The eyes, if capable of kindness and good fellowship, if ruddy for the moment with tears, were the eyes of one who could not be driven. The forehead, too, was like Charles's, high and straight, brown and polished, merging abruptly into temples and skull. It has the effect of a bastion that protected his head from the world. At times it had the effect of a blank wall. He had dwelt behind it, intact and happy, for fifty years. "'The post's come, father,' said Evie, awkwardly. "'Thanks. Put it down.' "'Has the breakfast been all right?' "'Yes, thanks.' The girl glanced at him, and at it with constraint. She did not know what to do. Charles says, do you want the Times? No, I'll read it later. Ring if you want anything, father, won't you? I've all I want. Having sorted the letters from the circulars, she went back to the dining-room. Father's eaten nothing, she announced, sitting down with wrinkled brows behind the tea-urn. Charles did not answer, but after a moment he ran quickly upstairs, opened the door, and said— "'Look here, father, you must eat, you know.' And having paused for a reply that did not come, stole down again. "'He's going to read his letters first, I think,' he said evasively. 
I dare say he will go on with his breakfast afterwards. Then he took up the times, and for some time there was no sound except the clink of cup against saucer, and of knife on plate. Poor Mrs. Charles sat between her silent companions, terrified at the course of events, and a little bored. She was a rubbishy little creature, and she knew it. A telegram had dragged her from Naples to the deathbed of a woman whom she had scarcely known. A word from her husband had plunged her into mourning. She desired to mourn inwardly as well, but she wished that Mrs. Wilcox, since fated to die, could have died before the marriage, for then less would have been expected of her. Crumbling her toast, and too nervous to ask for the butter, she remained almost motionless, thankful only for this, that her father-in-law was having his breakfast upstairs. At last Charles spoke. "'They had no business to be polding those elms yesterday,' he said to his sister. "'No, indeed.' "'I must make a note of that,' he continued. "'I am surprised that the rector allowed it.' "'Perhaps it may not be the rector's affair. Whose else could it be?' "'The lord of the manor.' "'Impossible.' "'Butter, Dolly?' "'Thank you, Evie, dear. Charles?' "'Yes, dear?' "'I didn't know one could pollard elms. I thought one only pollarded willows.' "'Oh, no, one can pollard elms.' "'Then why oughtn't the elms in the churchyard to be pollarded?' Charles frowned a little, and turned again to his sister. "'Another point. I must speak to Chalkley.' "'Yes, rather, you must complain to Chalkley.' It's no good him saying he is not responsible for those men. He is responsible. Yes, rather. Brother and sister were not callous. They spoke thus partly because they desired to keep Chalkley up to the mark—a healthy desire in its way—partly because they avoided the personal note in life. All Wilcoxes did. It did not seem to them of supreme importance. Or it may be as Helen supposed. They realized its importance, but were afraid of it. Panic and emptiness, could one glance behind. They were not callous, and they left the breakfast-table with aching hearts. Their mother never had come in to breakfast. It was in the other rooms, and especially in the garden, that they felt her loss most. As Charles went out to the garage, he was reminded at every step of the woman who had loved him and whom he could never replace. What battles he had fought against her gentle conservatism! How she had disliked improvements! yet how loyally she had accepted them when made! He and his father, what trouble they had had to get this very garage! With what difficulty had they persuaded her to yield them to the paddock for it! The paddock that she loved more dearly than the garden itself! The vine—she had got her way about the vine. It still encumbered the south wall with its unproductive branches. And so with Evie, as she stood talking to the cook. Though she could take up her mother's work inside the house, just as the man could take it up without, she felt that something unique had fallen out of her life. Their grief, though less poignant than their father's, grew from deeper roots, for a wife may be replaced, a mother never. Charles would go back to the office. There was little to do at Howard's End. The contents of his mother's will had long been known to them. There were no legacies, no annuities, none of the posthumous bustle with which some of the dead prolong their activities. Trusting her husband, she had left him everything without reserve. She was quite a poor woman. The house had been all her dowry, and the house would come to Charles in time. 
Her watercolors Mr. Wilcox intended to reserve for Paul, while Evie would take the jewellery and lace. How easily she slipped out of life! Charles thought the habit laudable, though he did not intend to adopt it himself, whereas Margaret would have seen in it an almost culpable indifference to earthly fame. Cynicism, not the superficial cynicism that snarls and sneers, but the cynicism that can go with courtesy and tenderness. That was the note of Mrs. Wilcox's will. She wanted not to vex people. That accomplished, the earth might freeze over her forever. No, there was nothing for Charles to wait for. He could not go on with his honeymoon, so he would go up to London and work. He felt too miserable hanging about. He and Dolly would have the furnished flat while his father rested quietly in the country with Evie. He could also keep an eye on his own little house, which was being painted and decorated for him in one of the Surrey suburbs, and in which he hoped to install himself soon after Christmas. Yes, he would go up after lunch in his new motor, and the town servants, who had come down for the funeral, would go up by train. He found his father's chauffeur in the garage, and said, "'Morning,' without looking at the man's face, and bending over the car, continued, "'Hullo! My new car's been driven!' "'Has it, sir?' "'Yes,' said Charles, getting rather red. "'And whoever's driven it hasn't cleaned it properly, for there's mud on the axle. Take it off!' The man went for the cloths without a word. He was a chauffeur as ugly as sin, not that this did him disservice with Charles, who thought charm in a man rather rot, and had soon got rid of the little Italian beast with whom they had started. "'Charles!' His bride was tripping after him over the hoar-frost, a dainty black column, her little face and elaborate morning hat forming the capital thereof. "'One minute, I'm busy. Well, Crane, who's been driving it, do you suppose?' "'Don't know, I'm sure, sir. No one's driven it since I've been back, but of course there's the fortnight I've been away with the other car in Yorkshire.' The mud came off rather easily. "'Charles, your father's down. Something's happened. He wants you in the house at once. Oh, Charles!' "'Wait, dear, wait a minute. Who had the key to the garage while you were away, Crane?' "'The gardener, sir.' "'Do you mean to tell me that old Penny can drive a motor?' "'No, sir. No one's had the motor out, sir.' "'Then how do you account for the mud on the axle?' "'I can't, of course, say for the time I've been in Yorkshire. No more mud now, sir.' Charles was vexed. The man was treating him as a fool, and if his heart had not been so heavy he would have reported him to his father. But it was not a morning for complaints. Ordering the motor to be round after lunch, he joined his wife, who had all the while been pouring out some incoherent story about a letter— and a Miss Schlegel. "'Now, Dolly, I can attend to you. Miss Schlegel, what does she want?' When people wrote a letter, Charles always asked what they wanted. Want was to him the only cause of action, and the question in this case was correct, for his wife replied, "'She wants Howard's End.' "'Howard's End? Now, Crane, just don't forget to put on the Stepney wheel.' "'No, sir.' "'Now, mind you don't forget, for I—' "'Come, little woman.' When they were out of the chauffeur's sight, he put his arm round her waist and pressed her against him. All his affection and half his attention, it was what he granted her throughout their happy married life. "'But you haven't listened, Charles. What's wrong?' "'I keep on telling you Howard's end. Miss Schlegel's got it.' "'Got what?' asked Charles, unclasping her. "'What the dickens are you talking about?' "'Now, Charles, you promised not to say those naughty—' 
Look here, I'm in no mood for foolery. It's no morning for it either. I tell you, I keep on telling you, Miss Schlegel, she's got it. Your mother's left it to her, and you've all got to move out. Howard's end? Howard's end! she screamed, mimicking him, and as she did so, Evie came dashing out of the shrubbery. Dolly, go back at once. My father's much annoyed with you. Charles! she hit herself wildly. Come in at once to father. He's had a letter that's too awful. Charles began to run, but checked himself, and stepped heavily across the gravel path. There the house was, the nine windows, the unprolific vine. He exclaimed, Schlegel's again! And as if to complete chaos, Dolly said, Oh no, the matron of the nursing home has written instead of her. Come in, all three of you, cried his father, no longer inert. Dolly, why have you disobeyed me? Oh, Mr. Wilcox! I told you not to go out to the garage. I have heard you all shouting in the garden. I won't have it. Come in. He stood in the porch, transformed, letters in his hand. Into the dining room, every one of you. We can't discuss private matters in the middle of all the servants. Here, Charles, here, read these. See what you make. Charles took two letters and read them as he followed the procession. The first was a covering note from the matron. Mrs. Wilcox had desired her, when the funeral should be over, to forward the enclosed. The enclosed, it was from his mother herself. She had written, To my husband, I should like Miss Schlegel, Margaret, to have Howard's end. I suppose we're going to have a talk about this, he remarked, ominously calm. Certainly. I was coming out to you when Dolly— Well, let's sit down. Come, Evie, don't waste time. Sit down. In silence they drew up to the breakfast-table. The events of yesterday, indeed of this morning, suddenly receded into a past so remote that they seemed scarcely to have lived in it. Heavy breathings were heard. They were calming themselves. Charles, to steady them further, read the enclosure out loud. A note, in my mother's handwriting, in an envelope addressed to my father, sealed. Inside. I should like Miss Schlegel, Margaret, to have Howard's end. No date, no signature. Forwarded through the matron of that nursing home. Now the question is— Dolly interrupted him. But I say that note isn't legal. Houses ought to be done by a lawyer, Charles, surely. Her husband worked his jaw severely. Little lumps appeared in front of either ear, a symptom that she had not yet learnt to respect, and she asked whether she might see the note. Charles looked at his father for permission, who said abstractedly, "'Give it her.' She seized it, and at once exclaimed, "'Why, it's only in pencil! I said so. Pencil never counts!' "'We know that it is not legally binding, Dolly,' said Mr. Wilcox, speaking from out of his fortress. "'We are aware of that. Legally, I should be justified in tearing it up and throwing it into the fire. "'Of course, my dear, we consider you as one of the family.' But it will be better if you do not interfere with what you do not understand. Charles, vexed both with his father and his wife, then repeated, The question is— He had cleared a space of the breakfast-table from plates and knives, so that he could draw patterns on the tablecloth. The question is whether Miss Schlegel, during the fortnight we were all away, whether she unduly— He stopped. I don't think that, said his father— whose nature was nobler than his son's. "'Don't think what?' 
That she would have— that it is a case of undue influence. No, to my mind the question is the— the invalid's condition at the time she wrote. My dear father, consult an expert if you like, but I don't admit that it is my mother's writing. Why, you just said it was! cried Dolly. Never mind if I did, he blazed out, and hold your tongue. The poor little wife coloured at this, and drawing her handkerchief from her pocket, shed a few tears. No one noticed her. Evie was scowling like an angry boy. The two men were gradually assuming the manner of the committee-room. They were both at their best when serving on committees. They did not make the mistake of handling human affairs in the bulk, but disposed of them item by item, sharply. Calligraphy was the item before them now, and on it they turned their well-trained brains. Charles, after a little demur, accepted the writing as genuine, and they passed on to the next point. It is the best, perhaps the only, way of dodging emotion. They were the average human article, and had they considered the note as a whole, it would have driven them miserable or mad. Considered item by item, the emotional content was minimized, and all went forward smoothly. The clock ticked, the coals blazed higher, and contended with the white radiance that poured in through the windows. Unnoticed, the sun occupied his sky, and the shadows of the tree-stems, extraordinarily solid, fell like trenches of purple across the frosted lawn. It was a glorious winter morning. Evie's fox-terrier, who had passed for white, was only a dirty grey dog now, so intense was the purity that surrounded him. He was discredited, but the blackbirds that he was chasing glowed with Arabian darkness, for all the conventional colouring of life had been altered. Inside, the clock struck ten with a rich and confident note. Other clocks confirmed it, and the discussion moved toward its close. To follow it is unnecessary. It is rather a moment when the commentator should step forward. Ought the Wilcoxes to have offered their home to Margaret? I think not. The appeal was too flimsy. It was not legal. It had been written in illness, and under the spell of a sudden friendship. It was contrary to the dead woman's intentions in the past, contrary to her very nature, so far as that nature was understood by them. To them Howard's end was a house. They could not know that to her it had been a spirit, for which she sought a spiritual heir. And, pushing one step farther in these mists, may they not have decided even better than they supposed? Is it credible that the possessions of the spirit can be bequeathed at all? Has the soul offspring? A witch-elm tree, a vine, a wisp of hay with dew on it. Can passion for such things be transmitted where there is no bond of blood? No. The Wilcoxes are not to be blamed. The problem is too terrific, and they could not even perceive a problem. No, it is natural and fitting that after due debate they should tear the note up and throw it on to their dining-room fire. The practical moralist may acquit them absolutely. He who strives to look deeper may acquit them, almost. For one hard fact remains. They did neglect a personal appeal. The woman who had died did say to them, Do this. And they answered, We will not. The incident made a most painful impression on them. Grief mounted into the brain and worked there disquietingly. Yesterday they had lamented. She was a dear mother, a true wife. In our absence she neglected her health and died. Today, they thought, 
she was not as true, as dear, as we supposed. The desire for a more inward light had found expression at last. The unseen had impacted on the scene, and all that they could say was treachery. Mrs. Wilcox had been treacherous to the family, to the laws of property, to her own written word. How did she expect Howard's end to be conveyed to Miss Schlegel? Was her husband, to whom it legally belonged, to make it over to her as a free gift? Was the said Miss Schlegel to have a life interest in it, or to own it absolutely? Was there to be no compensation for the garage and other improvements that they had made, under the assumption that all would be theirs some day? Treacherous! Treacherous and absurd! When we think the dead both treacherous and absurd, we have gone far towards reconciling ourselves to their departure. That note, scribbled in pencil, sent through the matron, was unbusinesslike as well as cruel, and decreased at once the value of the woman who had written it. "'Ah, well,' said Mr. Wilcox, rising from the table, "'I shouldn't have thought it possible.' "'Mother couldn't have meant it,' said Evie, still frowning. "'No, my girl, of course not.' "'Mother believed so in ancestors, too. It isn't like her to leave anything to an outsider who'd never appreciate.' "'The whole thing is unlike her,' he announced. "'If Miss Schlegel had been poor, if she had wanted a house, I could understand it a little. But she has a house of her own. Why should she want another? She wouldn't have any use of Howard's End.' "'That time may prove,' murmured Charles. "'How?' asked his sister. "'Presumably she knows. Mother will have told her. She got twice or three times into the nursing home. Presumably she is awaiting developments.' "'What a horrid woman!' And Dolly, who had recovered, cried, "'Why, she may be coming down to turn us out now!' Charles put her right. "'I wish she would,' he said ominously. I could then deal with her." "'So could I,' echoed his father, who was feeling rather in the cold. Charles had been kind in undertaking the funeral arrangements, and in telling him to eat his breakfast. But the boy, as he grew up, was a little dictatorial, and assumed the post of chairman too readily. "'I could deal with her, if she comes. But she won't come. You're all a bit hard on Miss Schlegel.' "'That pool business was pretty scandalous, though.' I want no more of the pool business, Charles, as I said at the time. And besides, it is quite apart from this business. Margaret Schlegel has been officious and tiresome during this terrible week, and we have all suffered under her. But upon my soul she's honest. She's not in collusion with the matron. I'm absolutely certain of it. Nor was she with the doctor, I'm equally certain of that. She did not hide anything from us, for up to that very afternoon she was as ignorant as we are. She, like ourselves, was a dupe." He stopped for a moment. "'You see, Charles, in her terrible pain your poor mother put us all in false positions. Paul would not have left England. You would not have gone to Italy. Nor Evie and I into Yorkshire, if only we had known. Well, Miss Schlegel's position has been equally false. Take all in all, she has not come out of it badly.' Evie said, but those chrysanthemums! Or coming down to the funeral at all! echoed Dolly. Why shouldn't she come down? She had the right to, and she stood far back among the Hilton women. The flowers—certainly we should not have sent such flowers. 
But they may have seemed the right thing to her, Evie, and for all you know they may be the custom in Germany." "'Oh, I forget, she isn't really English,' cried Evie. "'That would explain a lot.' "'She's a cosmopolitan,' said Charles, looking at his watch. "'I admit, I am rather down on cosmopolitans. My fault, doubtless. I cannot stand them. And a German cosmopolitan is the limit. I think that's about all, isn't it? I want to run down and see Chalkley. A bicycle will do. And by the way, I wish you'd speak to Crane some time. I'm certain he's had my new car out. Has he done it any harm? No. In that case, I shall let it pass. It's not worth while having a row. Charles and his father sometimes disagreed. But they always parted with an increased regard for one another and each desired no doughtier comrade when it was necessary to voyage for a little past the emotions. So the sailors of Ulysses voyaged past the sirens, having first stopped one another's ears with wool. End of chapter 11 Chapter 12 of Howard's End This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Howard's End by E. M. Forster. Chapter 12. Charles need not have been anxious. Miss Schlegel had never heard of his mother's strange request. She was to hear of it in after years, when she had built up her life differently, and it was to fit into position as the headstone of the corner. Her mind was bent on other questions now, and by her also it would have been rejected as the fantasy of an invalid. She was parting from these Wilcoxes for the second time. Paul and his mother, Ripple and Great Wave, had flowed into her life and ebbed out of it forever. The ripple had left no traces behind. The wave had strewn at her feet fragments torn from the unknown. A curious seeker, she stood for a while at the verge of the sea that tells so little, but tells a little, and watched the outgoing of this last tremendous tide. Her friend had vanished in agony, but not, she believed, in degradation. Her withdrawal had hinted at other things besides disease and pain. Some leave our life with tears, others with an insane frigidity. Mrs. Wilcox had taken the middle course, which only rarer natures can pursue. She had kept proportion. She had told a little of her grim secret to her friends, but not too much. She had shut up her heart, almost, but not entirely. It is thus, if there is any rule, that we ought to die, neither as victim nor as fanatic, but as the seafarer who can greet with an equal eye the deep that he is entering, and the shore that he must leave. The last word, whatever it would be, had certainly not been said in Hilton Churchyard. She had not died there. A funeral is not death, any more than baptism is birth or marriage union. All three are the clumsy devices, coming now too late, now too early, by which society would register the quick motions of man. 
In Margaret's eyes Mrs. Wilcox had escaped registration. She had gone out of life vividly, her own way, and no dust was so truly dust as the contents of that heavy coffin, lowered with ceremonial until it rested on the dust of the earth, no flowers so utterly wasted as the chrysanthemums that the frost must have withered before morning. Margaret had once said she loved superstition. It was not true. Few women had tried more earnestly to pierce the accretions in which body and soul are enwrapped. The death of Mrs. Wilcox had helped her in her work. She saw a little more clearly than hitherto what a human being is, and to what he may aspire. Truer relationships gleamed. Perhaps the last word would be hope. Hope even on this side of the grave. Meanwhile she could take an interest in the survivors. In spite of her Christmas duties, in spite of her brother, the Wilcoxes continued to play a considerable part in her thoughts. She had seen so much of them in the final week. They were not her sort. They were often suspicious and stupid, and efficient where she excelled. But collision with them stimulated her, and she felt an interest that verged into liking, even for Charles. She desired to protect them, and often felt that they could protect her, excelling where she was deficient. Once past the rocks of emotion, they knew so well what to do, whom to send for. Their hands were on all the ropes, they had grit as well as grittiness, and she valued grit enormously. They led a life that she could not attain to, the outer life of telegrams and anger, which had detonated when Helen and Paul had touched in June, and had detonated again the other week. To Margaret this life was to remain a real force. She could not despise it as Helen and Tibby affected to do. It fostered such virtues as neatness, decision, and obedience. Virtues of the second rank, no doubt, but they have formed our civilization. They form character, too. Margaret could not doubt it. They keep the soul from becoming sloppy. How dare Schlegels despise Wilcoxes, when it takes all sorts to make a world? Don't brood too much, she wrote to Helen, on the superiority of the unseen to the seen. It's true, but to brood on it is medieval. Our business is not to contrast the two, but to reconcile them. Helen replied that she had no intention of brooding on such a dull subject. What did her sister take her for? The weather was magnificent. She and the Mossebachs had gone tobogganing on the only hill that Pomerania boasted. It was fun, but overcrowded, for the rest of Pomerania had gone there too. Helen loved the country, and her letter glowed with physical exercise and poetry. She spoke of the scenery, quiet yet august, of the snow-clad fields with their scampering herds of deer, of the river and its quaint entrance into the Baltic Sea, of the Oderberge, only three hundred feet high, from which one slid all too quickly back into the Pomeranian plains. And yet these Oderberge were real mountains, with pine forests, streams, and views complete. It isn't size that counts so much as the way things are arranged. 
In another paragraph she referred to Mrs. Wilcox sympathetically, but the news had not bitten into her. She had not realized the accessories of death, which are, in a sense, more memorable than death itself. The atmosphere of precautions and recriminations, and in the midst a human body growing more vivid because it was in pain, the end of that body in Hilton Churchyard, the survival of something that suggested hope, vivid in its turn against life's workaday cheerfulness, all these were lost to Helen, who only felt that a pleasant lady could now be pleasant no longer. She returned to Wickham Place full of her own affairs. She had had another proposal, and Margaret, after a moment's hesitation, was content that this should be so. The proposal had not been a serious matter. It was the work of Fräulein Mosebach, who had conceived the large and patriotic notion of winning back her cousins to the fatherland by matrimony. England had played Paul Wilcox, and lost. Germany played Herr Forstmeister someone. Helen could not remember his name. Herr Forstmeister lived in a wood, and standing on the summit of the Oderberge, he had pointed out his house to Helen, or rather had pointed out the wedge of pines in which it lay. She had exclaimed, "'Oh, how lovely! That's the place for me!' And in the evening Frida appeared in her bedroom. "'I have a message, dear Helen,' etc. And so she had, but had been very nice when Helen laughed, quite understood, a forest too solitary and damp, quite agreed, but Herr Forstmeister believed he had assurance to the contrary. Germany had lost, but with good humour. Holding the manhood of the world, she felt bound to win. "'And there will even be someone for Tibby,' concluded Helen. "'There now, Tibby, think of that. Frida is saving up a little girl for you in pigtails and white worsted stockings. But the feet of the stockings are pink, as if the little girl had trodden in strawberries. I've talked too much. My head aches. Now you talk.' Tibby consented to talk. He, too, was full of his own affairs, for he had just been up to try for a scholarship at Oxford. The men were down, and the candidates had been housed in various colleges, and had dined in hall. Tibby was sensitive to beauty. The experience was new, and he gave a description of his visit that was almost glowing. The august and mellow university, soaked with the richness of the western counties that it has served for a thousand years, appealed at once to the boy's taste. It was the kind of thing he could understand, and he understood it all the better because it was empty. Oxford is Oxford, not a mere receptacle for youth like Cambridge. Perhaps it wants its inmates to love it rather than to love one another. Such, at all events, was to be its effect on Tibby. His sisters sent him there that he might make friends, for they knew that his education had been cranky, and had severed him from other boys and men. He made no friends. His Oxford remained Oxford empty, and he took into life with him not the memory of a radiance, but the memory of a colour scheme. It pleased Margaret to hear her brother and sister talking. They did not get on over well as a rule. For a few moments she listened to them, feeling elderly and benign. Then something occurred to her, and she interrupted. "'Helen, I told you about poor Mrs. Wilcox, that sad business.' 
Yes. I have had a correspondence with her son. He was winding up the estate, and wrote to ask me whether his mother had wanted me to have anything. I thought it good of him, considering I knew her so little. I said that she had once spoken of giving me a Christmas present. But we both forgot about it afterwards. I hope Charles took the hint. Yes, that is to say, her husband wrote later on, and thanked me for being a little kind to her, and actually gave me her silver vinaigrette. Don't you think that is extraordinarily generous? It has made me like him very much. He hopes that this will not be the end of our acquaintance, but that you and I will go and stop with Evie some time in the future. I like Mr. Wilcox. He is taking up his work—rubber—it is a big business. I gather he is launching out, rather. Charles is in it, too. Charles is married—a pretty little creature, but she doesn't seem wise. They took on the flat, but now they have gone off to a house of their own. Helen, after a decent pause, continued her account of Stetton. How quickly a situation changes! In June she had been in a crisis. Even in November she could blush and be unnatural. Now it was January, and the whole affair lay forgotten. Looking back on the past six months, Margaret realized the chaotic nature of our daily life, and its difference from the orderly sequence that has been fabricated by historians. Actual life is full of false clues and signposts that lead nowhere. With infinite effort we nerve ourselves for a crisis that never comes. The most successful career must show a waste of strength that might have removed mountains, and the most unsuccessful is not that of the man who is taken unprepared, but of him who has prepared, and is never taken. On a tragedy of that kind, our national morality is duly silent. It assumes that preparation against danger is in itself a good, and that men, like nations, are the better for staggering through life fully armed. The tragedy of preparedness has scarcely been handled, save by the Greeks. Life is indeed dangerous, but not in the way morality would have us believe. It is indeed unmanageable, but the essence of it is not a battle. It is unmanageable because it is a romance, and its essence is romantic beauty. Margaret hoped that for the future she would be less cautious, not more cautious, than she had been in the past. End of chapter 12《Chapter Thirteen of Howard's End》This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Glett. Howard's End by E. M. Forster. Chapter Thirteen Over two years passed and the Schlegel household continued to lead its life of cultured but not ignoble ease, still swimming gracefully on the grey tides of London. Concerts and plays swept past them, money had been spent and renewed, reputations won and lost, and the city herself, emblematic of their lives, rose and fell in a continual flux, 
while her shallows washed more widely against the hills of Surrey and over the fields of Hertfordshire. This famous building had arisen. That was doomed. Today Whitehall had been transformed. It would be the turn of Regent Street to-morrow. And month by month the roads smelt more strongly of petrol, and were more difficult to cross, and human beings heard each other speak with greater difficulty, breathed less of the air, and saw less of the sky. Nature withdrew. The leaves were falling by midsummer. The sun shone through dirt with an admired obscurity. To speak against London is no longer fashionable. The earth as an artistic cult has had its day, and the literature of the near future will probably ignore the country and seek inspiration from the town. One can understand the reaction. Of Pan and the elemental forces, the public has heard a little too much. They seem Victorian, while London is Georgian, and those who care for the earth with sincerity may wait long ere the pendulum swings back to her again. Certainly London fascinates. One visualizes it as a tract of quivering grey, intelligent without purpose, and excitable without love, as a spirit that has altered before it can be chronicled, as a heart that certainly beats, but with no pulsation of humanity. It lies beyond everything. Nature, with all her cruelty, comes nearer to us than do these crowds of men. A friend explains himself. The earth is explicable. From her we came, and we must return to her. But who can explain Westminster Bridge Road, or Liverpool Street in the morning, the city inhaling, or the same thoroughfares in the evening, the city exhaling her exhausted air? We reach in desperation beyond the fog. Beyond the very stars, the voids of the universe are ransacked to justify the monster, and stamped with a human face. London is religion's opportunity, not the decorous religion of theologians, but anthropomorphic, crude. Yes, the continuous flow would be tolerable if a man of our own sort, not any one pompous or tearful, were caring for us up in the sky. The Londoner seldom understands his city until it sweeps him away, too, from his moorings. And Margaret's eyes were not opened until the lease of Wickham Place expired. She had always known that it must expire, but the knowledge only became vivid about nine months before the event. Then the house was suddenly ringed with pathos. It had seen so much happiness. Why had it to be swept away? In the streets of the city she noted for the first time the architecture of hurry, and heard the language of hurry on the mouths of its inhabitants, clipped words, formless sentences, potted expressions of approval or disgust. Month by month things were stepping livelier. But to what goal? The population still rose. But what was the quality of the men born? The particular millionaire who owned the freehold of Wickham Place, and desired to erect Babylonian flats upon it. What right had he to stir so large a portion of the quivering jelly? He was not a fool. She had heard him expose socialism. But true insight began just where his intelligence ended, and one gathered that this was the case with most millionaires. What right had such men— But Margaret checked herself. That way lies madness. 
Thank goodness she, too, had some money, and could purchase a new home. Tibby, now in his second year at Oxford, was down for the Easter vacation, and Margaret took the opportunity of having a serious talk with him. Did he at all know where he wanted to live? Tibby didn't know that he did know. Did he at all know what he wanted to do? He was equally uncertain, but when pressed remarked that he should prefer to be quite free of any profession. Margaret was not shocked, but went on sewing for a few minutes before she replied, "'I was thinking of Mr. Vice. He never strikes me as particularly happy.' "'Yes,' said Tibby, and then held his mouth open in a curious quiver, as if he, too, had thoughts of Mr. Vice, had seen round, through, over, and beyond Mr. Vice, had weighed Mr. Vice, grouped him, and finally dismissed him as having no possible bearing on the subject under discussion. That bleat of Tibby's infuriated Helen. But Helen was now down in the dining-room preparing a speech about political economy. At times her voice could be heard declaiming through the floor. "'But Mr. Vice is rather a wretched, weedy man, don't you think?' "'Then there's Guy. That was a pitiful business. Besides,' shifting to the general, "'every one is the better for some regular work.' Groans. "'I shall stick to it,' she continued, smiling. "'I am not saying it to educate you. It is what I really think.' I believe that in the last century men have developed the desire for work, and they must not starve it. It's a new desire. It goes with a great deal that's bad, but in itself it's good. And I hope that for women, too, not to work will soon become as shocking as not to be married was a hundred years ago. I have no experience of this profound desire to which you allude, enunciated Tibby. Then we'll leave the subject till you do. I'm not going to rattle you round. Take your time. Only do think over the lives of the men you like most, and see how they've arranged them." "'I like Guy and Mr. Vice most,' said Tibby faintly, and leant so far back in his chair that he extended in a horizontal line from knees to throat. "'And don't think I'm not serious, because I don't use the traditional arguments. Making money, a sphere awaiting you, and so on, all of which are, for various reasons, can't," she sewed on. "'I'm only your sister. I haven't any authority over you, and I don't want to have any. Just to put before you what I think the truth.' "'You see,' she shook off the pince-nez to which she had recently taken, "'in a few years we shall be the same age, practically, and I shall want you to help me.' Men are so much nicer than women. Labouring under such a delusion, why do you not marry? I sometimes jolly well think I would, if I got the chance. Has nobody asked you? Only ninnies. Do people ask Helen? <laughs> Plentifully. Tell me about them. No. Tell me about your ninnies, then. They were men who had nothing better to do," said his sister, feeling that she was entitled to score this point. So take warning. You must work, or else you must pretend to work, which is what I do. 
Work, 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 if you'd save your soul and your body. It is honestly a necessity, dear boy. Look at the Wilcoxes. Look at Mr. Pembroke. With all their defects of temper and understanding, such men give me more pleasure than many who are better equipped, and I think it is because they have worked regularly and honestly. Oh, spare me the Wilcoxes, he moaned. I shall not. They are the right sort. Oh, goodness me, Meg! he protested, suddenly sitting up, alert and angry. Tibby, for all his defects, had a genuine personality. Well, they're as near the right sort as you can imagine. No, no, oh, no! I was thinking of the younger son, whom I once classed as a ninny, but who came back so ill from Nigeria. He's gone out there again, Evie Wilcox tells me, out to his duty. Duty always elicited a groan. He doesn't want the money. It is work he wants, though it is beastly work. Dull country, dishonest natives, an eternal fidget over fresh water and food. A nation who can produce men of that sort may well be proud. No wonder England has become an empire. Empire? I can't bother over results, said Margaret, a little sadly. They are too difficult for me. I can only look at the men. An empire bores me so far, but I can appreciate the heroism that builds it up. London bores me. But what thousands of splendid people are labouring to make London— What it is, he sneered. What it is, worse luck. I want activity without civilization. How paradoxical! Yet I expect that is what we shall find in heaven. And I, said Tibby, want civilization without activity, which I expect is what we shall find in the other place. You needn't go as far as the other place, Tibbykins, if you want that. You can find it at Oxford. Stupid! If I'm stupid, get me back to the house-hunting. I'll even live in Oxford, if you like. North Oxford. I'll live anywhere except Bournemouth, Torquay, and Cheltenham. Oh, yes, or Ilfracham, or Swanage, and Tunbridge Wells, and Surbiton, and Bedford. There on no account. London, then. I agree, but Helen rather wants to get away from London. However, there's no reason we shouldn't have a house in the country, and also a flat in town, provided we all stick together and contribute. Though, of course— Oh, how does one maunder on, and to think, to think of the people who are really poor! How do they live? Not to move about the world would kill me. As she spoke, the door was flung open, and Helen burst in, in a state of extreme excitement. Oh, my dears, what do you think? You'll never guess. A woman's been here asking me for her husband. Her what? Helen was fond of supplying her own surprise. Yes, for her husband, and it really is so. Not anything to do with Bracknell, cried Margaret, who had lately taken on an unemployed of that name to clean the knives and boots. I offered Bracknell, and he was rejected. So was Tibby. Oh, cheer up, Tibby. It's no one we know. I said, Hunt, my good woman, have a good look round. 
hunt under the tables, poke up the chimney, shake out the antimacassars. Husband? Husband? Oh, and she's so magnificently dressed and tinkling like a chandelier. Now, Helen, what did happen, really? What I say! I was, as it were, orating my speech. Annie opens the door like a fool, and shows a female straight in on me with my mouth open. Then we began, very civilly. I want my husband, what I have reason to believe is here. No, how unjust one is. She said, whom, not what. She got it perfectly. So I said, name, please. And she said, Lan, miss. And there we were. Lan? Lan or Len. We were not nice about our vowels. Lan o Len. That what an extraordinary! I said, My good Mrs. Lanolin, we have some grave misunderstanding here. Beautiful as I am, my modesty is even more remarkable than my beauty, and never, never has Mr. Lanolin rested his eyes on mine. I hope you were pleased, said Tibby. Of course, Helen squeaked, a perfectly delightful experience. Oh, Mrs. Lanolin's a dear, she asked for a husband as if he was an umbrella. She mislaid him Saturday afternoon, and for a long time suffered no inconvenience. But all night and all this morning her apprehensions grew. Breakfast didn't seem the same. No, no more did lunch, and so she strolled up to two Wickham Place as being the most likely place for the missing article. But how on earth— don't begin how on earthing. I know what I know, she kept repeating, not uncivilly, but with extreme gloom. In vain I asked her what did she know. Some knew what others knew, and others didn't, and if they didn't, then others again had better be careful. Oh dear, she was incompetent. She had a face like a silkworm, and the dining-room reeks of orris root. We chatted pleasantly a little about husbands, and I wondered where hers was, too, and advised her to go to the police. She thanked me. We agreed that Mr. Lanolin's a naughty, naughty man, and hasn't no business to go on the la-di-da. But I think she suspected me up to the last. Bags I writing to Aunt Julie about this. Now, Meg, remember, bags I. <laughs> Bag it by all means murmured Margaret, putting down her work. "'I'm not sure that this is so funny, Helen. It means some horrible volcano smoking somewhere, doesn't it?' "'I don't think so. She doesn't really mind. The admirable creature isn't capable of tragedy.' "'Her husband may be, though,' said Margaret, moving to the window. "'Oh, no, not likely. No one capable of tragedy could have married Mrs. Lanolin.' Was she pretty? Mm, her figure may have been good once. The flats, their only outlook, hung like an ornate curtain between Margaret and the welter of London. Her thoughts turned sadly to house-hunting. Wickham Place had been so safe. She feared fantastically that her own little flock might be moving into turmoil and squalor, into nearer contract with such episodes as these. 
"'Tibby and I have again been wondering where we'll live next September,' she said at last. "'Tibby had better first wonder what he'll do,' retorted Helen. And that topic was resumed, but with acrimony. Then tea came, and after tea Helen went on preparing her speech, and Margaret prepared one, too, for they were going out to a discussion society on the morrow. But her thoughts were poisoned. Mrs. Lanolin had risen out of the abyss, like a faint smell, a goblin football, telling of a life where love and hatred had both decayed. End of chapter 13